And then it just takes you to these weird places where it's yeah. like you have a task and it's like you go. And on the way, you find some street food. Yeah. You know, or whatever. But just like having, like you said, like having yellow. Go find some yellow. Yeah. And then it doesn't matter where you're going. Just find a reason to go. That, that's exactly, that's almost quotable. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I take a deep dive on the topic of independent travel with the comedian Ari Shafir, who's been a frequent guest on this podcast, and as you might suspect, it's a fun one. I actually got the idea for this episode last summer when listening to the podcast companion to the HBO show Chernobyl. The creator of that show is a guy named Craig Mazin, and I've been a fan of his screenwriting podcast, Script Notes, for years now. The genius of the Chernobyl podcast in particular was the way it could dig into the show's themes and explore the way the show was created in a way that didn't take away from the experience of watching the show itself. It occurred to me that podcasting would be a great companion to books, and sure enough, when the spiritual writer Richard Rohr came out with his new book last year, it was done in tandem with an interview podcast called Another Name for Everything that had a way of augmenting the book's themes without taking away from the pleasure of actually reading it. Now, the podcast you're listening to now, Deviate, isn't necessarily about vagabonding-style travel. Granted, over half of my Deviate episodes touch on travel in some way, but I've done some of my deepest dives into vagabonding themes on other people's podcasts. So in a sense, those conversations are kind of an audio companion to my book, Vagabonding, which I wrote back in the days before podcasting was common. One of the best podcast interviews was with Ari Shafir when I met him for the first time ever almost three years ago. We sat down in New York's Tompkins Square Park and spent four hours recording an episode of his Skeptic Tank podcast, and it turned out to be one of my favorite appearances on another podcast for the simple fact that Ari, who had just returned from Asia, was so astute and enthusiastic about discussing vagabonding travel. That in mind, today's episode is a remix of sorts from that old 2017 conversation, edited for length and to avoid redundancy with themes I've already explored on Deviate. I'll put a link to that original Skeptic Tank conversation in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. In the course of our new remix discussion, Ari and I talk about things like bargaining and the ethic of how to approach bargaining in other cultures. We talk about how travel forces you to be more of an extrovert and how it's easier to make lasting friends when you travel than it is at home. We talk about what it's like to eat food you don't recognize and how the experience of travel changes when you go on foot. We talk about train jumping in the American West and drinking the world's cheapest beer in Myanmar and exploring Africa by 4x4 and how I wrote Vagabonding when I was in Thailand. It's the kind of conversation that will get you stoked about travel, in part because Ari was so stoked about travel when we had the conversation. A reminder to spread the word about this podcast and leave a friendly review on your favorite podcasting service. And a reminder that if, like Ari, you find yourself headed out on a vagabonding trip around the world, the first tool you should check out are the online flight planning tools designed by my sponsor, Airtrex, which more or less invented the notion of designing multi-stop and round-the-world flight itineraries. These itineraries can save you money, even as they make the trip simpler to carry out. Go to Airtrex.com and plug in some of your dream trip destinations to see what I'm talking about. When you take that trip, you'll want to check out my other sponsor, Tortuga, which makes backpacks and backpack accessories for people taking long-term journeys. Go to rolfpots.com Tortuga to see a selection of their travel packs, and if you see something you like, you don't even need to enter a promo code at checkout anymore. Just type in rolfpots.com Tortuga, and you'll automatically get 10% off your order when you go to checkout. 
This is a new procedure, so if for some reason that 10% discount doesn't work, just give us a heads up at deviatedrolfpots.com and we'll make sure your discount gets sorted out. All right, here's Ari Shafir and I geeking out on the glories of long-term world travel. We start by talking about all the different obsessive lenses through which you can see a place. Let's listen in. My friend went to China. He loves illegal fireworks. Okay. Steve. And uh, he tries great to get a pretext to go to China. Yeah. Well, he went for a tour, for a comedy tour. Okay. But he's always, whenever he comes to Chinatown, he's always like, do you have the good stuff in the back? And then I like beat it, Narc. We don't want it. He's like, damn it. And there's this video he made of him finding Chinese fireworks and setting them off. And it's just this dark street. And then he like lights them off. And then towards the end of the video, a fucking full bus goes by. And you're like, oh, this is not an abandoned street at all. This huh. is just a working street that you're just lighting off fireworks. And he's in China. He's in China, yeah. And, you know, I everything goes there. Um, and, and I love the idea of, of the vice. Like, that's his thing. You know, he's, not <laughs> yeah. going, he, he's not going to he's the like opium, opium den, yeah. right? And, and, you know, he's not one of these guys who's obsessed with, with rare butterflies. It's the fireworks. Yeah. That, that's what I love about travel, too, is that you can find whatever you're nerding out on yeah. know, and find the local iteration. Uh-huh. You can find – I remember when I was in Myanmar, um, finding – like tapes of Myanmar musicians. And this was in like 2001, wow. which was pre-opening up. And it was like, this is the, the Burmese Cypress Hill. I mean, it's like Cypress Hill could probably sue these guys for, for stealing. It, it could have even been just like Burmese language cover songs. Of, of They do Burmese language cover songs a lot. Yeah. You'll hear some on the radio and you're like on one of those buses and you're like, wait, I know this song. I've heard this song before, but that, this is not English. It could have been what it was, you know, whatever, however insane in the brain translates yeah. <laughs> into Burmese. Uh, and so that was part of the fun of it is that you can. And I know a guy who used to write for my blog um, sort of takes a punk rock he, he 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 seeks out music scenes in places like malaysia and indonesia and, and, and parts yeah. of asia or bangladesh i think he wrote an article about black metal in bangladesh um wow. and so I, my point being is that whatever obsesses you that's actually more interesting than than just sort of following the top 10 list and on on the, on the website that says what yeah. you should do in a place i met some australian guy and he was talking about how there's a vibrant um skate community in yangon yeah yeah and you're like that. you just don't picture when you think of that era you're not picturing that but it's like yeah but you picture new york there's basketball players and handball players and skaters and like yeah. there's lots of different scenes yeah and i think skate skateboarding in particular is, is a very american idiom right mm-hmm. you know uh california in particular and so i had a i, I talk about vagabonding a lot and, and once at a university lecture a guy came up to me afterwards and he, and he basically said my skateboard is my ticket everywhere because while people are in paris looking at the sites they think they're supposed to see i'm i'm skating everywhere and i'm hanging out with these you know, French and Senegalese French and Algerian French skateboarders yeah. think it's awesome that, you know, I'm not from California, I'm from Kansas, but they think it's awesome that an American skateboarder. And so that becomes the idiom. And suddenly it's a window into a place and a community that he, you wouldn't have if you were just doing your top 10 bucket list of things to see. Yeah, in exactly. Skating near the Eiffel Tower or something like that. It's like, yeah, yeah. I like going hiking in every country I can. Yeah. You know, yeah. just to be like, saw the countryside. Yeah, no, that's great. The, the pace at which you go affects things too like i tried to walk across israel 17 years ago really yeah from what jerusalem and tel aviv um yeah um i went up to capernaum i was trying to do it jesus style yeah. so i went up to capernaum <laughs> um, where he's from uh, but it was like in may it was so hot oh yeah and, and so i um i didn't make it i made it to megiddo uh and then i started hitchhiking but the great thing about i had this cowboy hat and the great thing about hitchhiking in israel is that you're you're also a novelty as an american 
Mm-hmm. And so a couple girls picked me up hitchhiking. Like I never get picked up by women when I hitchhike. Like young, like 20, cute 25 year old Israelis. Yeah. And so they took me to Tel Aviv and we had a great time. Especially as white as you look that are like, okay, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm actually. I like hitchhiking. You just point out, right? Is that how it is? It's not the thumb. It's the finger. I used my thumb, okay. which I think with the cowboy hat, hat sub helped underscore my foreignness <laughs> yeah. there. Um, Israel <laughs> yeah. is one of the few places where I, I don't, I guess I don't look Jewish. It's one of the places where people are, oh, are you, you're American. Are you Jewish? Um, usually I don't get that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then also like I had, my, my hair was really long in my passport photo, but I had, it was short when I was crossing the border. And again, there's these, there's these cute border guard ladies and they're, they're like, they're taking forever. And it's like, shit, am I in trouble or something? And they're like arguing over whether I looked better with long hair or short hair. <laughs> and so, um, uh, so I, I, I had a great time there too. Um, one w- walking was good because I, it was such a slow pace at which to, to experience the place. And there's mm-hmm. great, a great trail system in, in, in Israel. And then oh, two, is really? once I was two, yeah, yeah. The topographical maps, everything. It's like hiking in France or something. It's a very well-documented trail system. Um, and then two is that once I wimped out on the hike, you know, once yeah. I realized I didn't want to die of dehydration, uh, I started hitchhiking and it shot it into a completely different direction and a completely different pace. Um, and I, I actually, I met more people, I was, I sort of had a loner experience when I was hiking in that situation. Um, whereas when I was hanging out with, um, gosh, what, what were their names? Yifat and I forget. Anyway, yeah. then suddenly I was hanging out with their friends in Tel Aviv. Like, like that I was in, you know, Israel's not a very big country. There is something to, um, the social, I guess, fact, the uh, part of traveling where it's like, there's some ways you can do it where you're just not going to meet anybody. And there's other places where it's like, you have no choice but to meet people yeah. like on the buses on the way to a tour or something where like you're stuck next to somebody yeah, yeah, for yeah. two hours while you're on this bus and you're like, so where are you from? Like you just have to, you have to talk. That's why I'm a big fan of taking a bus to a place you don't know. Yeah. You know, we've talked about going to the wrong town because 90% of the time it's going to be half full of people who live there. Yeah. Know? And so the person sitting next to you is suddenly going to be your window into this place that you know nothing about. Oh, it's the best. You're like, where, where should I eat? What's the good places? Yeah. And they're like, okay. And people love talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. That happened. That happened in Syria once that like I was, I mean, this was Syria? Again, 17 years ago. So, yeah. um, but I was with this guy and he, like he's Kurdish and I'm, I'm, I didn't hardly know anything about Kurd, Kurds, yeah. but I, but I ended up staying with his family for like three days, you know, just cause I was the, the, the lost looking guy on the bus to, um, oh, what was that called? It's, it's in the news a lot now, now that Syria has become such a sad war torn place. Not, not Aleppo, but, um, uh, oh, was it the one they, they not commissioned, uh, Kamishli. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but it's on the Turkish Syrian border. And it's a very multicultural city. It's like, I'm hanging out with Sunni and Shia and, and three different kinds of Christians. And, and we're talking about the Utah jazz, you know, and one guy's here, like I got in an argument over whether or not magic Johnson was dead. <laughs> really? <laughs> Some guy wearing a keffiyeh. So. And you're um, like, no, it's like, I'm, I don't think you're right. And you're like, he, I'm pretty sure I am. He got HIV, but I swear he's not dead. You know? <laughs> um, anyway, it's, it's one of those absurd situations that are so fun. And it's because you're, you're the awkward guy on the bus. Um, who they finally send the English speaker over to find out what the yeah 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 the yeah yeah they'll have yeah. someone else who knows a little bit of English like hey yeah. bridge the gap for us yeah and it's usually a student like a young person mm-hmm. who's studying English or like a, a crusty old sailor who's been around the been world there. you know so yeah it's, a lot of times it's some kid who's in university who's like yeah I'm I'm a better generation I've seen TV I get these words yeah yeah and it's 
I think we're blessed to be traveling in a generation when the it, you know English is the lingua franca. The world's very interconnected, and yeah. so I can be this slobby, no second language guy. It's um, kind of a blessing and a curse being uh, speaking English because you're like everyone. If they know any other language, it's probably going to be mine. Yeah. Um, like German people will speak your language, you know? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it kind of limits us in, in terms of like, what are we actually going to learn? Yeah. It, we're not forced to to stretch ourselves a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, I have found, I don't know how much travel you've done in South America, Latin America. No, and i got to go there soon. That's actually a place that will force you to learn Spanish a little bit. That's um, what I want to I do that. I want to learn Spanish and one other language before I go out to my next couple of spots. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, if you, if you put yourself in that, on a bus with strangers situation you'll find yourself practicing it a lot yeah. because for whatever reason it, there's English I found that English is spoken more seldom in a western hemisphere country like Peru than in a place like even even Myanmar um, uh, in Asia it, it, it's weird but the good thing for me is it, it forced me to, to work on my Spanish yeah what's well, the best way to do it that's, that's they have oh. an Ulpan in Israel where they separate everybody from their families when you move there for two weeks. It's a place called Ulpan. It's, okay. a, it's a type of school. Oh, okay. Um, and if you're there with, let's say, you, you, your wife, and two kids, everybody's separate. They put you in separate camps for two weeks, and all you do is speak Hebrew. So you might be with some Russians oh, okay. and some Germans, and so no one knows each other. It's kind of like Babel. Okay, yeah. Uh, and then within two weeks, like, you can get by now. That's now go great. into the world. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Where'd you take Spanish? Bolivia? Where'd you take Spanish? Take Spanish? Yeah. Didn't you Le- stop and learn Spanish in Bolivia or something? Am I misquoting your book? No, I, I mean I studied Spanish in Cuba in the Dominican Republic. Okay, like there was a while where I thought my next book would be about trying to learn how to dance in Latin America. Yeah, because I figured like I've the mountain climbing and stuff is fine. I'm comfortable with that, but trying to learn how to dance uh, in a Latin American country seemed more challenging somehow. You know, yeah. like, there's this cultural thing. I just thought I could learn a lot. I thought it would be an interesting window into culture. I never wrote the book. Um, but part of that was studying Spanish. Now, unfortunately, in Cuba and the Dominican Republic, it's a really weird Caribbean mushmouth Spanish. Oh. And so I would be studying the language with my teacher, and it was more it was f- more formal and orthodox. And I'd go in the street, and I had a hard time. Oh. Uh, you know, imagine studying English in, in the Mississippi Delta. Yeah, uh, right. And so you're studying the, the orthodox English, and you're coming out, and people are dropping off the second half of words, and... And they're pronouncing their vowels differently. Oh, yeah. And you're like, that makes no sense. Yeah. Or you go to Pittsburgh and you hear like, what's a yinzer? What does that mean? I don't understand what yeah. the words you're yeah. saying. Yeah. So, so you get that in, in, in Caribbean Spanish. Uh, and so I remember running into a Colombian guy in Havana. I had some Cuban friends, but they all spoke English. And, and I, I had this weird emotional moment where I felt like crying because I could understand. It, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so my Spanish is pretty awful. I, I, I spoke some, I spoke market. I lived in Korea for a couple of years so I can read and write Hangul and um, which is not that hard. And then I, I know some phrases that come back to me when I drink a lot of soju. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then my Spanish got okay, but it was never fluent. But, you know, it's that travel situation where you're forced to do it. And I think Latin America forces it on you more than you might think. Dude, there's this level of getting by uh, ability in, in a language. I met this Italian girl in, in Indonesia. She could just, like, get, like, what times the buses were leaving and stuff like that in... Bahasa. Okay. And it was just like, oh, I need to know that. One through ten. Yes. Um, yeah. Please, thank you, hello. Just a certain words where it's like. I, I, I want. Where yeah, I is. want. Bathroom, yeah. restaurant, or mm-hmm. food. Just certain things. I want, yeah. Where if you can just get by, it makes your experience so much easier. 
I, I learned that from from being in Korea and even teaching language. I was teach, I was an, a conversation teacher before I came a, became a writer, yeah. and, and just sort of realizing how language works and and those basic communication things. Yeah. So so where is um, is great. The numbers one through ten and a hundred and a thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, food stuff, beer stuff. Um, transportation stuff maybe 50 phrases you can get pretty far and one great advantage is it, it's sort of a sign of good faith and what so that you're trying yeah that you're trying that you're uh-huh. not the person who's screaming in English because you, they, you think that speaking louder is going to make you understood <laughs> you're the person you're the person who's basically saying where's the bathroom in an adorable t- tenor of an eight year old that you're like using baby you know baby Tagalog or baby Korean and people are like oh my god this person is trying that's awesome my nephew speaks English let's figure out what this guy really wants yeah. um, and that's another fun thing and that's that's actually a great way uh, and this is another part of the conversation we could have which is how electronics you know how the conveniences of travel have changed travel I do want to ask you about that yeah because it used to be like before you showed up here, I was reading Insta. I was reading articles on Instapaper on my phone. You know, I just send all my magazine articles to Instapaper, and I would just pass the time reading articles. Yeah. Now I can burn off an eight-hour bus ride that way. Mm-hmm. Fifteen years ago, I would study phrases. You know, I, I would study. That was when I would study my language. That's when I would look around. And, yeah, that's and, what I and tried start to do with tattoo to people, Where it's like, yeah. And I, and I preach this stuff, but I'm still beholden to that laziness that comes with having fifty books and five hundred articles on my phone. You know, in addition to all of my texting technologies and everything else, is that sometimes, um, you know, I can be a little bit of an introvert or a misanthrope. And instead of talking to the craggy old guy across the aisle, then I'll just, you know, read a Wired article on Instapaper. Well, yeah. How much of that with a smartphone? Actually, I, I know people think like, no, I'm just doing it when nothing is around. But it's like, but if, if really nothing was around and you didn't have your smartphone, after about 30 minutes, you would force yourself that's my belief to enter oh, into these uncomfortable absolutely. situations to, to cure yourself of this boredom yes and that's something that's lost and I, I don't want to over preach about that but I've seen it happen before my eyes and like my nephew just turned 18 he's going to college when he travels he'll have less of a concept of being, being lonely, away. lost yeah. and bored three big things that were a part of my travel experience in 1999 when I really started to travel in Asia that are harder to happen. That it's harder to happen. You don't have to be bored because so much is on your phone. You don't have to be lonely. Um, and, and there's some positive. I mean, you can make connections with locals through social media and stuff. Yeah. Um, you can use yeah. social media to meet friends of friends. Yeah. There's 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 pros there, for there's sure. There's definitely pros. Yeah. But, but in real time, like it used to be. Well, I'm hungry. Where am I going to eat? Um, and let's say this is this is in Europe. It, it used to be, well, f- where, where are all the local people eating? Yeah, you know? exactly. What smells what, good? Hey, what's a good place? Right. I'll, I'll, I'll use my my worst Polish to ask where the restaurant, yeah. where to eat. Well, now you're you can tweet your friends, you can use Yelp or whatever, and then and then suddenly that interactive element, you're in your bubble. You're, yeah. Um, you're basically um, you're, you're you're home a little bit. That you you're, you're basically using the same. But some of it's also like home. yeah, it's like I, I have this theory that like sometimes a good Yelp review will help you like find something delicious you never would have had a whale burger in Norway or something like that right but sometimes it's just because some travel writer maybe you went to some restaurant and enjoyed it and it's not the place to be exactly. it's just good and you're like yeah. by the way have the ribeye it's really good and then next guy's like I gotta have the ribeye and then someone else <laughs> writes about that and then it becomes yeah. like you have to have the ribeye in, in Reykjavik when you're yeah. in so and so and you're like no you don't it's just what fucking Rolf had one time yeah <laughs> the, the chef's probably like I do a bunch of good stuff and it's gotta drive local people crazy you know uh-huh. restaurateurs um, 
No, and, and that happened to an extent with paper guidebooks is that whatever Lonely mm-hmm. Planet guy threw. Yeah. And then in some countries, if if your restaurant was in Lonely Planet, you sort of didn't have to try anymore. So in a so way. So it would get worse. Yeah. So, so the service would get worse. And so that's why I think if you allow yourself to get lonely, lost, and bored, then you're going to find it's going to. It's just going to deepen the experience of travel. It's, you're going to, yeah. it's, it's not going to be something you can micromanage. It's not going to be something where you know your next five moves. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be something where we're shit. You know, I'm, this, this is horrible. I'm going to talk to yeah. somebody that I wouldn't, wouldn't talk to. And I, I mentioned being an introvert. That's who I, I am. Too. And travel forces extroversion on me, you know. Every Quiet? No. The book? Well, who's it by? Susan Cain. I'll have to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is it about introversion? Yeah. 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 Um, and I do once I'm rolling, I do pretty good. Um, yeah, I have trouble hard. just getting started. My first few days was like, I don't know how to talk to strangers, so I, yeah. I, I'll just be super lonely. Yeah. And then what happens to you? Something happens to you where you're like, I'll say hi, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, then you get used to that. And so, so yeah, I'm, I'm a much more extroverted part of myself and I'm, I'm, I'm more open to strangers too. When yeah. I travel. Um, um, because I'm often, because I don't look like I'm from there, I'm often approached by people who, who are curious Do and sometimes help? the, the, okay? town, the yeah. town crazy too. Like the, like the, um, the obsessive middle-aged guy whose family has stopped talking to him will come and he'll show me his, you know, 15th century dagger collection or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's that, that social dynamic changes. Um, and because I'm a writer, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty solitary by nature. I'm fairly introverted. Uh, and so it forces this, forces me to exercise this, this pretty awesome side of myself, which is a more interactive person who seeks out this, the, these sorts of, uh, conversations and relationships. Is there a way to bring that? I, me and my friends were talking about it. The ones I met out there, is there a way to bring that level of socialness back to America? Um, at, when you were saying that, I was thinking, oh, somebody will invent an app, you know, somebody will yeah, yeah. <laughs> invent an app where you get points for being more social. Um, yeah, I think um, the scab grows back sometimes. It's easy. Yeah. You, you become comfortable being that person when you travel, and then suddenly you're back home, and it, and it slowly scabs back over, and, and you're not that person so you stop anymore. talking to your neighbors, or you don't, yeah. like, I mean, I live in a building, I haven't met everybody. I've lived there for yeah. three years. Yeah. And I've met everybody in a, in a dorm in wherever, in Cambodia, within, like, two days. Yeah. It's so how is that possible? I, I think, too, that sometimes those people in the dorm in Cambodia – you, you get past the, oh, I hear about the new restaurant that opened up conversation. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're, you're actually having really intense conversations with, strain, with near strangers yeah. in foreign lands. Have you noticed that? Yeah. yeah. Real interesting, like deep dialogue. Yes. Yeah. Because I think a lot of travelers are, are, are they're putting things together. You know, they're... About the world or about their... About the world and... and humanity. About, you know, they're always outsiders. It's, it, it, I'm always amazed by how sometimes travelers can be competitive, you know, as if... You're an expert mm-hmm. traveler, you know, as if as if you're in this town where you've been for five days and you're somehow better than your fellow travelers. And so I think I hate that shit, man. When people talk down to you and you're like, "You yeah. just got here. Shut yeah. the fuck up." Yeah. Well, I've actually studied some anthropology. Anthropologists around the '70s realized that um, anthropologists at first got pissed off that they would go to an isolated culture and then backpackers and missionaries would be wandering through. And then it's like, well, shit, maybe we should interview them too. And so there's an actual anthropology of tourism that has flourished for the last few decades. And um, this scholar did a a study of backpackers and 
one of the first two questions that are asked is how long have you been traveling? Because that sets the social hierarchy. You know, right. all of you are complete outsiders, dilettantes, and ignorant of the local language wherever you are. But if you've been traveling 18 months instead of two weeks, then suddenly the status You're is an old wise out man. And, and, and you can be an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> or yeah. or you, can be a, you can be a mentor or whatever. But it's, it's, it's funny how that shakes out. And it's been that way. I've read um, memoirs and oral histories of the hippie trail and people were probably even more obnoxious about that hierarchy back then. Oh, you haven't been so-and-so? I've been there. It's great. (laughs) Like, shut up. Not everyone's like that though. Certain people have a different way of delivering the same information. Yeah. 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 And I think, and I think it, even that conversation changes the more you travel and the older you get, you know, mm-hmm. that there's a point in your travel career where it just sounds, it's, it's like the most exciting thing that you've been to 15 countries. You, you feel yeah. like Thor or something. And then suddenly it's 10 years later and you've been to 70 countries and you're, and you're a fraction, you have a fraction of the arrogance you had. You what's know, your, what's you were, your number now? It's, ooh, I'm going to have to recount. Like yeah. I try not to be a country counter. Yeah. Um, Cause it's more than just countries, right? It's not, yeah. ju- it's the experiences you have there. It's the experiences you have there. And then, like, I traveled with the self-proclaimed world's most traveled. I wrote a story about the world's self-proclaimed world's most traveled man for the New York Times Magazine, like, 10 years ago. Yeah. And he was trying to, to, to construct a methodology for counting. And it's just, I don't know, it just seems so empty at the end of the day. You know, you can have been to every country in the world, but, well... Did so, you do, like, a day in each city and never really have any... Did you crap in every uh-huh. city? Did you talk to a person in every city? I mean, mm-hmm. what is the methodology? And and and, uh, and I talk a little bit about this in, in Vagabonding, about how a, a, the slow, nuanced experience uh, of a single country is better than 30 countries in your passport stamp if you're, if you're just rushing through to say you've been there. You wrote somewhere in there where it's like, kind of try to stop saying the phrase, I did this country. You know, I did okay. Myanmar instead of just like, I was in Myanmar for a while. Yeah, it was really yeah. fun. I don't know if that's a vagabonding quote, but that's a good way of, to think about it is that, is that, you know, what does that mean? You know, if you, if you said that about a person, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a former lover, yeah. that would be the height of, of, of crassness. You see it on the race. Like oh, I did blacks. It was, I had two friends back in the seventies. Right, right. <laughs> like, oh, no, no, keep doing it. So I, I, but I think that's part of that insecurity. And I think that's how we, we got on, on, on this tangent is about you. If you can see the insecurity uh, as a gift, you know, yeah. as, as opposed to something that you have to protect yourself against by saying, well, I've been to 15 countries and you've been to two. And so this is how it is. Um, but I think my point isn't to say that every backpacker's dorm is full of assholes because there aren't, right. but it's that it's full of people who are open to the experience. They're negotiating that insecurity. They're trying to figure out how are they, what are they going to come home with? What are they learning? What do they not know? Where are they safe? Where are they not safe? Um, can they eat this food? Can they not eat this food? And that's why when you're sitting in that dorm, suddenly you're having a conversation that you would never have with some of your closest friends, you know, because you can just jump over everything else and, 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 and embrace your vulnerability, you know, that state of travel that makes you feel raw and excited and and freaked out sometimes. There's a a thing in comedians, sort of do early on and people th- assume we do is put ourselves in bad situations so that we can have stuff to write about it mm. where it's like travel oh. writers do the same thing yeah but I'm saying this comedians don't do that and shouldn't do that if we get stuck in a shitty situation we can use it but okay. never to intentionally put yourself in something shitty but yeah. in travel it almost seems like there will be way more joys by leaving your phone at Interesting. home by intentionally putting yourself in the, I might get lost or I don't have a lot of money here yes because then uh, and I think this actually is something I wrote in Vagabonding, that if you only are judging your trip by fulfilling your expectations, then that becomes the standard for... Um, you want to talk to you about expectations. What, what, what works... 
in your travels that basically you have won the title of best consumer, that you've made a plan, the plan has delivered, um, you get the gold star and, and you get to go home. Whereas if you're, if you're bleeding outside of your plan, then suddenly you're getting the gift of what you had never dreamt was out there to begin with, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and then also- well, you have no idea. And you're fucking up and it's like, is this the only toilet in the village? And then suddenly, you, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking about things. You're not, just, you're not just fulfilling consumer expectations. You're trying to figure out if you can actually take a shit, you know, bend your six foot three frame over this hole in the floor and and then suddenly it's it's more interesting in many ways dude than, let's talk about toilets for a little bit okay okay i mean I, we i don't know if we have it the best here but it's certainly we're not used to not here right I mean, what are the worst toilets you've been to oh africa has had had some of the worst really yeah, yeah. um asia is pretty great and, and there's an argument for the fact that Asian the Asian toilet system, like the one that's in India, is actually better than what we have. Because yeah. when you're squatting, it's um, it's it's uh, the shit comes out just as I've well. heard that. <laughs> and two, they wipe with their hands and water. Uh huh. And um, and I heard this from a backpacker. Um, if you got shit on your face, would you wipe it off with paper? Or no. Would you wipe it off with you water. You get some water. Yeah. And so, uh, and of course, that creates another problem, which is there's a reason why Indian people don't eat with their left hand. And I'm left-handed. <laughs> and so when I'm eating with my left hand in India, I'm like the grossest person on the street by their standards because um, they think that that's my ass-wiping hand. Yeah. Um, Dude, I did it on a hike in Griffith Park two weeks ago, and I had the shit just so bad. And I told my friends, like, I- I'm going to go, man. I'm going to go. It's yeah. fine. I just crouched. And he's like, we don't have any toilet paper. I'm like, you have a full bottle of water. Give it to me. And then okay, I use yeah, that. And he yeah. was like, are you kidding me? Okay. <laughs> like, it's fine. Yeah. It doesn't ever like seal in. It just like goes away fast. Yeah, yeah. No, and actually you can use leaves. I used to, leaves, I yeah, younger, yeah. I did a lot of backpacking in Colorado and stuff. Um, and there's great techniques. You know, you just lean up against a tree. I was in Africa this winter and I did a little bit of this out, out in the bush. You know, you just prop your back against a tree and, and it approximates the Western oh, toilet. Yeah. You know, the gravity isn't going down. You're just propping yourself. I lived in Asia for a long time and never fully mastered the squatty potty. Really? Um, I was way better this time than I was the last time. Yeah. It's, I, I think there's the, the leg to torso ratio is different between Asians and uh, yeah, like East shorter. Asians in particular. Well, they're, they're wasted. They're, 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 they're shorter on average, but also their torsos are longer. Their legs are shorter and their torsos are longer. Oh, really? As far as I can tell, maybe this is a completely horrible thing that, that it's not empirically true and I'm being somehow <laughs> sure, culturally maybe. insensitive. And but. they have more practice squatting. They squat constantly when they yeah, smoke cigarettes yeah. and shit yeah. and eat. And my knees, when I get up, I'm like, ah, fuck. But I, I really think that and I'm sorry to Asian people if this is not empirically true, but <laughs> I think if you squat and your leg to torso ratio is is shorter, then your center of gravity is above your legs. Whereas when I squat, my knees are at my ears and my center of gravity is pulling me backwards. Yeah, so. yeah. How do you not fall back? Which yeah. is the worst thing that could happen. Which to you. is why I lean against with my back against right, the tree. Right, right, yeah. We're in a, we're in the very technical shit part of the conversation <laughs> now, but it's but it's tricky that, you, that it's problem solving, which is which is another great part of travel. But yeah, no. Um, yeah, problem solving. Le- leaves. Leaves, dirt. Uh-huh. Um, there's different ways to clean yourself. Dirt. Up yeah, you can rub dirt all over your hands and like wash them, and yeah. then wash that off. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I did. Uh, I did. Uh, one of my essentials that I brought with me was uh, wet wipes. Uh huh. Where I'm like, I'm not going to find these there, and okay. I absolutely need them, and I want right. to be able to wipe one clean during a squad. Somebody when there's no bum gone. I think it's Barry Sonnenfeld, someone who's who's not a travel guy, yeah. um, but just sort of is somehow enlightened when it comes to to taking a shit. Yeah. I think I read this in Esquire like 10 years ago. It says he carries Tux medicated pads. 
And oh. in, in the article he writes, he says, reader, listen, take a crap, wipe yourself with the toilet paper until you think you have the cleanest ass in the world, <laughs> then take one tux pad and wipe your ass, and the amount of sadness you see there will shock you. <laughs> so it's, it's the same argument that, that paper, there's limits to what paper does. Um, and so that's great. Yeah, your, your, your wet wipes or your tux is My going friend to showed it to me once because he always used um, wipes at home, like here, you know? Yeah. And uh, I was like, why? And he was like, let me show you something. He spilled a little Coca-Cola, two, two little things of Coca-Cola on my table, and yeah. he gave me a dry paper towel and a wet towel. And he goes, wipe them each up with one of these. And he goes, now feel the table. And he goes, that one's still sticky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you think is happening? Well, it, I mean, that, it, that sounds like tux, that like sounds that. like a commercial from the 1980s, right? <laughs> yeah. And so somewhere there's a, there's a tux commercial that will never happen <laughs> about wiping your ass and about, travel. About, about a guy who, who's whose twelfth ass wipe is with a tux pad, and look what was left over. What about um, some of the foods you've had on your travels? Because some of them, they're just like unique. Just mm. like I don't know what this is. It's not like oh, we have a, this is kind of like a burger in America, but you guys do it a little different. It's like right. something's like I don't know what this is. Like what are some of? Give me an example from your travels. There was a uh, a market we took in Kofenyang, maybe mm-hmm. we took um, uh, mopeds around the island, and then we got tired and just went through. And there was just some local market selling brooms and stuff, but also like food. And there were these little, about the size of peasant eggs or uh, well, quail eggs, eggs yeah. Um, but they were like some sort of crepe, and we didn't know if they were savory or sweet. You just point. They, they were put, crepe. They were something like that. I found uh, out later maybe they were coconut based. Oh, and it was, was so good was in Kofenyang or okay. Kosamui. No, I've seen those. Yeah, yeah. Those and, are... and you bite into it, you're like, oh, sweet. I yeah, thought yeah. savory, but okay. Yeah. And you're just like, I don't know what this is. It's fucking delicious. Uh-huh. Pretty much any of the street food in Myanmar, where you're like, I've never heard of this. Right. I don't know what this is. And you're just like, let's go for it, man. That that's so fun. Um, one thing I learned that sweets. When you think sweets, you think like hard candies or Snickers uh-huh. bars or whatever in the United States. You go to a place like Egypt, and all yeah. the Egyptians I've met are, are like completely crazy about sweets. But it's like that. It's it's like you go into a whole store, and there's not a single hard candy. It's just all this local these these local delicacies and and sweet Baked foods type things. Yeah, and so in Thailand, actually, I was I was a real wimp about that when I I wrote vag I was in Thailand when I wrote vagabonding, and I, I think I I don't think I did enough of that um, because. Yeah, no, I, I, that's one thing I regret. I ate some, some wild food, some insecty type food when I yeah. was in Thailand. But I think it's even more interesting. When I go back, I'm going to have to do that. To, to eat those, it's like sort of the what the fuck is this experiment. And you yeah, and then they put like 12 it. in a bag or 10 in a bag. Yeah. Oh, I thought maybe just one. And then you give them pretty much pennies yeah, to try yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. If it's terrible, you just chuck it when no one's looking. Yeah. That's that's some of the fun ritual, and I've chucked a lot of food. That yeah, way. for sure, absolutely, absolutely. You bite into some meat, and you're like, uh, nah. The, the funny thing is, is that there's a flip side to that too. Is that um, I made my friends that I made in Cuba were bagpipers. Um, they played. They're like young really? hipster guys in their mid twenties. They played the Asturian bagpipes. It's a Spanish bagpipe that was brought over with Asturian uh, settlers in um, the 19th century from Spain. Wow. And so. They were just musicians, and so they played bagpipes, and it was awesome. And that's all—that's a whole other story. That's like a podcast of its own. But um, they visited Nova Scotia um, during my book tour when I was doing my Marco Polo. Didn't go there book tour. I met them in Nova Scotia. It was their first time out of the country. And I'm here. My friend is Marcel, and I'm like, "Oh, dude, Marcel, you have to eat Doritos. They're great." <laughs> and so he took this. And so he's like, and it was as if I had just, you know, uh, betrayed him because he started eating it and. 
like he, he spit it out and <laughs> really because it's like a it's like a dried corn thing with powder on it you know um, and we're, we're used to enjoying <laughs> processed like, food it was so weird to him that um he it just for whatever reason the food he'd been eating in cuba was so and the food wasn't very good in cuba in my experience but yet the dorito which i thought would be this awesome snack for him um after years of you know seeing doritos advertisements during cartoons or something he didn't like it and so it's it's the equivalent of of you know you you or me you know going to a place in in asia or maybe even latin america and yeah. getting something that we try and we end up not liking because we're not just not used to things tasting but that it's way it's still fucking fun to try oh it's totally to it's like, totally fun see. to try quail eggs that was the thing i had in thailand and i saw them again in in Myanmar, where it's like you go by and you're like, you know what? Yeah, let's try it. And they give you a bunch, a drop or two of like some sort of soy sauce. Yeah, yeah. It's delicious. It's just delicious. And you see, see, Richville, when I first went to the Philippines, it was the first tropical country I went to. I saw the balut. Everybody, well, they were carrying out plastic bags full of liquid, you know? Uh-huh. It was Coca Cola. Is that uh, it was oh, a really? country where they, you buy a Coke, you don't get the bottle, the bottle is recycled. You know, we're uh-huh. sort of in a, um, we don't have that relationship to soft drinks anymore. But they just pour it in a bag. You drink it out of a straw, out of a plastic bag. Oh, weird. Um, but it's but but normal. I ended up yeah. I ended up doing that a lot, and then I didn't have to worry about what to do with my bottle. You know. Uh huh. Um, there so are anyway. some different food type things too, like ice over uh, beer over ice in Vietnam. Yeah, Thailand, it's the same way. Yeah, it, and it's because it's so hot. You know. And it, I've had it here since then, where it's like you get an okay, like lukewarm beer. Like, yeah, yeah, I've had this before over ice. Let's just put it over ice. Yeah. People, people mix, like in Hungary, they'll mix Coke with wine. Really? Um, uh, and of course, it's less common, or it's more common to mix like white wine with a Sprite, you know, a spritzer. Um, yeah, so, I mean, color tracking, psychogeography, flaneur aside, food, you could spend a year just, you know, if you want to break, you know, if you want to, if you're tired of the hostel scene, go to the market and just fart around with food. Yeah. And that's, that's a great window into the country. Yeah. Um, and, and just a great way to, to interact with people because there's not only the merchants, but there's people shopping for food, you know. For like goods, you mean? Like, like not, yeah. f- I mean, like uh, grains and shit like that? Yeah, or, or the same, or for sweets or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. So you're buying sweets for the first time, and here's someone, it's their granddad's favorite sweet, and they're buying, and so that's another way to, to meet people and sort of get where they're coming from. They like looking at you too, like eating something when you point. And oh, you can yeah. tell They can tell you've never had this, and yeah. they watch you. They're like, "Let me see if this fucking white is gonna like this thing." Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> it's know? it's fun for them, um, and it's yeah, it's 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 a part of the dynamic. I, my my newest book is about souvenirs, and I, um, in one point in the book, I mentioned going to the hog market or the new market in Calcutta. Uh-huh. Have you been to India before? No. Okay, India is its own continent. I mean, there's just so many languages, and it's that seems it's like amazing, ten countries in one. Yeah, it's like ten countries in one, and it's a little hard. Like, um, like it's almost like Southeast Asia is training wheels for India in a sense because it's a little bit easier to get around in Southeast. Well, it's, it's not too hard. India is just intense. India is in, is intense, and so, um, but it's interesting. Anyway, I went to the the hog market in Calcutta, and I wanted to buy some souvenirs, and there's souvenirs from all over India. And again, there's 18 major languages in India. There's all these regions. <laughs> And this market had souvenirs representative of all the regions. But then I realized that everybody around me was, was, was a tourist like me, you know. And the market is giant. And everybody else was, was – normal people were, were buying like stainless steel pans, you know. Right. And it's like, yeah. well, okay, so a stainless steel pan is probably more representative of daily life mm-hmm. in India than this Rajasthani puppet that I'm about to buy. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up wandering into the market and like spending a day there, you know, of just sort of sort – of 
putting my tourist side self again I'm not going to knock acquiring souvenirs but I just realized for a second that I was not buying what everybody else was buying it was sort of this uh, epiphany huh. moment of, of just how much happens at a market because you know? they do have these goods that are for tourists in a lot of markets yes where it's yeah. like almost like is this just mass produced somewhere for like you know on like the Bintang shirts and stuff like that where it's like okay there's nobody here wears this yeah. Like what would it, I, I want that? I want that Moroccan. You ever see the Simpsons when they buy that paw? No, and I don't think three so. wishes, and every time it gets a wish, the monkey paw goes down one finger. I haven't seen it. No, but shit like that, where you're like, okay, this is a market somewhere where I'm buying something that they would buy. Just yeah, handmade goods. Yeah, yeah. which looks less which exotic. You really get that? What? Which looks less exotic? That stainless steel pan that was uh, yeah, manufactured in Chennai <laughs> yeah. is not going to look as good as the Rajasthani puppet. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's interesting to think about, um, and it's it, it, it puts you into the the dynamic of a place, and 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 makes you think about how all this works. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, there's um, there's this uh, some podcast somebody told me about, it, I think, and it just like shows you how your food is made. So like, when it's oh. just rice, like where does it come from? Who makes rice? Right. And like, and then it shows like people picking rice in a rice paddy up yeah, to their up to yeah. their you know chest and. In water and just like so you have an understanding of like how food gets from each place you know then the chicken that's on top of it comes from well that's the modern condition i mean 200 years ago that would have been completely redundant uh-huh. you know because everybody knew exactly where <laughs> yeah, their food exactly came from. yeah i don't know how to change um, the oil and so now we're, we're we're getting these delicious cherries that were grown in chile yeah. you know that and have like, been flown thousands here? of miles here um i think i have a travel writing colleague kelsey timmerman he, who wrote a book called where am i wearing and another one called where am i eating that looks into both of those questions. Mm. Uh, but you were talking about mass production. I actually ended up with some great souvenirs from Myanmar, and it sounds like you've been there w- recently. Because yeah. um, I was there in the rainy season. And you were there 2001? 2001. And wow. I, I lived on so the, different then. Yeah, maybe. I haven't been back. I lived on the border of Thailand and Myanmar when I was riding vagabonding. So I went to Khao Tong, this little border village, once a month to get my visa renewed. In the south? In the south. Okay. The very, very southern part of, yeah. of, of mainland Myanmar. Um, but, um, yeah, just because it was tourist low season, I, I, I paid a guiltily small amount of money for these marionette heads, you know, from the, the traditional uh, Burmese theater. Um, and so... I had a similar experience. I was in a market in Africa, and it's the same thing. That there's a lot of carvers in Africa, and and uh, I was in Mozambique, and uh, there was a tourist part of the market. Is that basically it was these carved fishes? I got one from my mom, mm-hmm. uh, and then some of the carvers were there. It, it was sort of sad because tourist season had had gone over. Most of the tourists in Mozambique are from South Africa during Christmas season, and so there was like. These really super cool guys. There's like six of them, and they were all carvers. And I was going to buy one carving, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, I, I guess that brings you into a different dynamic of travel, which is the you sort of learn learn the uh, privileges and overused word, but we'll use it now um, just for the purpose of the conversation. That we're suddenly there's these there's these um, six guys that you're talking to. They speak great English. They're maybe in their mid twenties. You can relate to, you remember being like that when you're in your mid twenties. Um, and if they lived in New York, you know, they'd probably be making whatever six figures, but but they're carving fishes and selling them to people in Mozambique. And suddenly you have to choose one of them. It's like one of these ethical tests that there's no answer to. Yeah. And so, um, 
you you had mentioned there's a sense that which these products can feel mass produced and the fishes those carvings I bought in Mozambique I saw iterations of in Namibia and South Africa and stuff it's not like they're it's not like it's unique folk art uh, but the guys are good and um, it feels mass produced but it isn't it's all it's all handmade yeah sometimes you see the, the same sort of thing but if, also I've found if I talk to the artist. I don't know. It has like a more special place. Yeah. Where it's like I live with my family, um, and my girlfriend lives with her family. We're trying to like do whatever. I'm trying yeah. to take these art classes. Yeah. And you see the same style everywhere, but it's like, oh, this kid's trying to make himself something of himself. It's like yeah. a more interesting like art piece that way. Yeah. Yeah. In in a, a an economy that isn't industrialized, you know, yeah. um, that that's a way to make money. And, and, and in the high season, I'm, I'm sure they do well, but. Uh, it was just a weird dynamic. I got a great deal on a fish because six guys were, or a carved fish because six guys were trying for your money. We're we're we're, we're, we're bargaining for my money. So, yeah. uh, so I guess that's another example. I hadn't meant this to be my point, but it can be. Is that buying souvenirs can be a window into a place, especially mm-hmm. when you take it slow and you see what's there and you talk to the people who made them, and then suddenly instead of, and, and it's amazing how many souvenirs you buy in Egypt or the Czech Republic that are made in China. That's a different story. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a shit you want to avoid, but it's like, God damn it. Right. Uh, but yeah, so suddenly you're having conversations that you wouldn't have if you were just grabbing something off the rack at the airport, you know, that you're, you're making an adventure of your souvenir. Yeah. So. I try to get a, a fridge magnet everywhere okay. per country. I'm sure they're all made in China. But Probably. Yeah. But it's just like something to be like, it gets me out of the, out of the dorm to be like, yeah. hey, I got to find this magnet today um, until yeah. you find one. Didn't have to be great. Just like something. And then it gets you moving. I don't know. It gets you moving and it certifies that you're there. Yeah, and I can put, uh, something I can put in my fridge to be like, been to right. these seven or yeah. ten or whatever it is. I, in, in my book, I talk about that a lot. Like, I don't want to disparage the mass-produced souvenir because, like, there's a place near where I stay in Paris. What? <laughs> he was going to land on that arm, you know. Yeah, I just, I just got courted by a parrot, a very flirtatious parrot. Not a parrot, a pigeon. Pigeon, way different. It would be a lot more interesting if it was a <laughs> yeah. parrot. Uh what was I talking about? A mass-produced uh, Oh, yeah. No, in, in Paris, um, there's a souvenir shop near where I live, and it's like if you walk to the Eiffel Tower, it'll take an hour. Um, but all she, she sells mostly Eiffel Tower stuff, and I'm like, why do you sell so many Eiffel Tower things? And she's like, that's what people want to buy. Yeah. That's- um, and I think it's easy if you've traveled a lot to think, oh, look at these silly people who are buying an Eiffel Tower souvenir or a refrigerator magnet when you could get something else. But I think... Sometimes it's easy to forget that people just want to certify that they've been to a place, yeah. you know. Um, also, I need something small. Well, that's another consideration with the souvenir is yeah. that, that um, uh, something that's easy to pack away is a pretext. Actually, to report the book, I went to the Souvenir Vendors Convention in Las Vegas yeah. a year and a half ago. And people have studied that. You know, they small, kitschy, like... Um, you can make fun of tacky souvenirs, but the reason there's so many tacky souvenirs is that people like people like to buy stuff they can laugh at, you know. And not spend a lot of money on. Yeah. For three or four or five dollars, well, it's way better than fifty dollars. The vendors I talk to that they they make they do huge business on super cheap Chinese made stuff because people like it. They don't have to think about it too much. It certifies yeah. the trip, uh, and it doesn't spend a lot of money, and it can fit in their the pocket of their of their bag. So. Yeah. You ever come across a lot of dog meat where you go? Well, and how do you handle that? In Korea, I... Um, That's the home of dog meat, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, like... it's, it's, it's been... I know a lot more about dog meat in Korea because I lived in Korea for two years. Um, and I had... Teaching English? What did you do? Teaching English, yeah. Okay. Before I was, that was the last thing I did before transitioning into travel writing. And it was a great way to learn another culture and save money for travel. Um, it, was, it was a huge 
nest egg from that experience that helped fund my Asian travel before writing. And you're also already traveling while you're living in Seoul. Or well, I was living in Busan, which okay. is Los Angeles. You see Train to Busan? What's that? Have you seen the movie Train to Busan? It, it is literally on my watch list on Netflix. Is yeah, it good? Man, it's real good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll, I'll have to watch it. Maybe I'll watch it when I fly over the ocean um, using that little download feature. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Busan, that's just, it's, it's where I happen to end up. And then people will make both uh, jokes about Boshintong, which literally means um, health enhancement stew. But it's, it's a dog meat stew. And I, I wrote about this too. and yeah. I talked about it. I've talked about it quite a bit that a certain generation of Koreans see dog meat. I mean, it used to be not just Korea all over the world that dog was, uh, dogs would be running around on a farm, but if, if times got tight, you'd eat the dog. Right? Well, there's also, they run around so much. It's almost like fish where you're like, yeah, there's tons of fish in the ocean. Yeah. No one has them. Yeah. They don't belong to anyone kill them and eat them. And when there's stray dogs everywhere, it's like, why wouldn't you just, yeah. Why wouldn't you kill those and eat those? Especially, especially when it's been a hard year and you've already mm-hmm. eaten your chickens. And, and this, yeah. this happened everywhere up to a few hundred years ago, right? So, you know, as I think I said in the article, cows are bad at catching Frisbees. It's hard to anthropomorphize <laughs> a cow. You know, it's just easier. You know, I'm from Kansas. I've seen a lot of cows being raised. Um, but still, it, it's an animal that just happens to have a lot of endearing anthropomorphic um, characteristics. Now, I'm not, not going to argue for eating dog meat, but it's something that was explained to me in depth because I spent so much time in Korea. Basically, men see it as sort of boner food. It's sort of Korean Viagra. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh. It's supposed to give you, in the summer months, and this, it, uh, it doesn't make sense. I think some like stuff is still horn? lost in translation. In a sense, yeah, similar thing. But the, for whatever reason, older Korean men think, or at least thought when I was there, that uh, it's harder to get it up in the summer when it's hot and humid. <laughs> And so it's all science, man. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But it's almost like there's so when when you go to eat boshintong, there's sort of this backslapping male atmosphere. It's almost like going to a Hooters or something, and and you're just things are a little bit more crass. And maybe not everybody's gonna use their dog meat boner to have sex for seven hours, but it's just sort of this wink, wink, nudge, nudge ritual. Yeah. That and then I'm not sure how common it is now. I really suspect it's still there though, because they they supposedly closed the Boshintong restaurants in 1988 when the Olympics came through. Because it was embarrassing? Because it was embarrassing. It, yeah. But I was there a decade later, um, and it was, still, it was still very common. Now, it's possible that the younger generation of, you, of Koreans are less into Boshintong, but when I was there, it was not unusual at all. Did you have any? Yeah. How was it? It was good. It was very... It had, there was a lot of uh, gochujang, which is like a red pepper sauce, a lot of mm. uh, ginger. So it was, it was very... It was like a tender beef. It, it was yeah. okay. Like I've had a kangaroo and it's real chewy. Apparently you got to cook oh. it like real low and real long to yeah. get it like where you can like eat it normally. Yeah. Uh, I found some dog meat in um, either Timor-Leste or, or Kupang or somewhere in Indonesia. Okay. Um, but it was just like that in those wall rooms Did, where they kind of like, it's just the meat is just left just out for there. hours. Yeah. No, no, no. It's all chopped up. Okay. Okay. But I'm like, I don't want to eat cold dog for my first dog meal. Right. Something yeah. fresh maybe. What are yeah. those things called? Boshantongs? Well, Boshintong is the name. It means health and it's a euphemism. Oh, okay, it means okay. health enhancement stew. They also call it, was it gay? Oh, gosh. Have I forgotten the word for dog already? Gay tong? Anyway, um, sometimes they call it mung mung tong. Mm-hmm. And mung mung is, means bow wow. It's Korean for bow wow. Nice. So there's these wink wink nudge nudge. I think Koreans and maybe Korean Americans in particular are sensitive about it. Um, and sometimes I talk about this on college campuses and people get 
upset. Like, is this racist? I don't know how. <laughs> you know, it's not. Just calm down. Well, no one cares. Well, part of my point is that, like, when I was eating with who at the time were my students, I'm here. I was trying to explain to them why we don't eat dog, like we see it as inhumane. And they're here. Well, we understand that, but. In America, when your grandma gets old, you you ship your grandma across town to a to a care home, and then you're like you're like a, 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 a virtuous grandson for visiting her twice a month. Whereas in our culture, when grandma gets old, we don't outsource her. We we make sacrifices and we we in their put culture. her in her home and we honor yeah. her, right? And so the lesson college students sometimes don't get complexities, but so my lesson was like, look, okay, dog meat. That's an easy thing to judge as an American, but we've forgotten to, we've completely forgotten about how we deal with old people in the United mm-hmm. States. And then there's pragmatic reasons for having uh, older people in care homes, but Koreans really are taken aback by the idea that in, in a Confucian culture where age accrues respect, um, then you just sort of, you dump off grandma at a home and that's that. Yeah. Case closed. Whereas, in whereas Korean kids, or at least the kids of the generation I was teaching twenty years ago, grandma was in the house every day. She was old. She had she had earned her retirement. You know, she was a, she was a, an honored person who was respected, and was in the home. And maybe she had a harder time going to the bathroom and whatever. But she she was a part of their life. And so that's that's another interesting lesson that you can learn from travel and from food specifically. You know, you go in and and instead of judging, just like just eat it and see what it's like. Yeah, or, or ask people why they eat it. And, mm-hmm. and just gent- gently say, well, you know, in my country, we don't eat this because. And then and um, people like to explain things. And I think Koreans are a little bit sensitive about dog meat specifically. And so they gave me some great – I was floored by that that old people uh, oh, yeah. analogy. It's kind of embarrassing. And, and, and humbled, yeah. yeah. And so I think um, – yeah, try try different things and then ask questions. It's it's a great we way. Were, to we were get having a, some version of uh, of um, balut in Cambodia. They have something similar. Okay. And some man came by. and goes, oh, he saw we we're eating it, and uh, he was like, gives you night energy. Okay. And whoever was like, he means for sex. Okay. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, now that you're, I guess, more, let's say more successful than uh-huh. you were when you started traveling. Yeah. How is it? made the travel experience different for you you know having money versus not not that you're loaded but like you know what i mean right yeah no i'm I'm much more stable yeah uh and then i'm also sort of this travel guru guy and and so like Mm. back when i was really traveling in a super interesting way nobody was asking me to speak to their universities oh right (laughs) and now and I, i still like i had some great travels in africa this winter but i'm not i'm not hand to mouth like i was in 1999 or whatever I think and not only am I more experienced but I'm older and so I'll rent a car sometimes and there's like there's no way when I was 28 I would rent a car yeah um, now I'm 46 and I rent cars all the time and in fact when I was in Europe with my my sister and one of her sons came a couple years ago it was cheaper it was cheaper to rent a car and drive to Amsterdam and stay really? in an Airbnb in a field full of windmills and split the cost than it would have been to take a train and stay in the worst, worst hostel in the red light district because we were splitting costs, you know. Yeah. Another thing, great thing about um, renting cars is you can pick up hitchhikers. Um, and so in a way, I've, oh. I've, I'm just more comfortable spending money and I've discovered things that my 28-year-old self would be surprised at. Like, hey, it's actually renting a car may be expensive sometimes, but other times it helps save money. And you can pick up hitchhikers and you can find... Especially in Africa, God, you know, what? the highways are lined with people who, who are waiting to pick up a ride, usually with a big truck. Um, and, and so if you find somebody, who, they have their, their fruit for the market and they just need to go eight miles, you know. So you pick them up and talk to them? 
Yeah, sometimes. Um, wow. Uh, and sometimes they won't speak English. But like if you rent a pickup in Africa or get a pickup in Africa, I'm sure you could... Africa in general is a very social place. Um, and I found people were very open to, to talking and, and spoke pretty good English, at least in the... But I was, I was in or near South Africa, so English is pretty common down there. Um, so anyway, that's just an example of something, I, an expense that I didn't make when I was younger that has yielded interesting results now. Yeah. Um, it also frees you up. I found just in renting a moped or a motorbike. Yeah. Frees you up to be like, I'll go and come whenever I want. Yeah. Instead of waiting for a bus or waiting for like... Or even a bicycle. Your, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Opens up the whole city instead of just the area you're in. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, I underutilize that. I really should bicycle more. Like they have the Valib system in Paris, which is like your city bikes, city bikes here in New York. City bikes are great. And the Valibs are great in Paris. It's, it just really? has changed my relationship to the city. Because you can pedal the entire city. It's not a very big, physically very big city. Yeah. And there's racks everywhere. So um, going back to your earlier question, I think there's some ways that maybe I'm a little bit lazier than before. And mm-hmm. part of it is because my smartphone makes it easy for me to be lazy. And at the end of the day, sometimes I'd, I'd rather spend more money and not smell the feet of somebody from, you know, Wales. Um, it is frustrating to be like, you know, some loud drunk coming into a dorm at three yeah. in the morning, just yeah. like screaming. You're like, gosh, shut up. Where are you from? Not now. Not now. <laughs> right. Yeah. What are you doing? Right. Or they'll turn on the lights. I'm like, sorry. I'm like, then turn it back off. Use your cell phone light. <sighs> like, stop it. Those are annoying. But then the joys of that breakfast, the free breakfast yeah. where it brings yeah. everyone together. And like, what's there to do here? What should I be seeing? Yeah. Where should I be going? Oh, is there a cool jazz club here? Oh, that's a great, en- a great energy. Yeah. The hostile mornings. I mean, it, yeah. Actually, that's something I should I, I do a lot less of now, especially because if I'm traveling with, with multiple people, I can split oh, yeah. an Airbnb and it's cheaper than the hostel, especially in Europe. But I, I miss that dynamic. And it, it's so funny. I, it's, the, it's the kind of humor that probably wouldn't translate to comedy um, right. just because it's not a common experience. But like the loudest snorer I've ever heard in a dorm <laughs> was this German girl who was sleeping right next to me. And of course, they thought it was me because in the darkened like, who would dorm in Jerusalem, yeah. they thought it was, oh, it was the the knobby American guy over there. And so finally I had to like shake her bed and wake her up. Um, anyway, <laughs> you know, these hostile idiosyncrasies. And so sometimes I'm just too tired to mess with it. And so I'll spend more money. Yeah. And that's a nice lecture to have. And, and, I, and I, that's actually something I talk about in the book is that it's not a contest to spend the least amount of money. And, and, and yeah. sometimes, you know, why should you get into negotiating? Um, and this is something I saw in Phnom Penh about negoti- these people who are negotiating a 10 cent, you know, what, what would amount to a 10 cent bargain on a, um, on the pedicab yeah. and they're going to go drink $10 in beer at the bar, you know? Yeah. Some of um, it though, I find I'm trying to justify why I would bargain one. It's fun. Cause I'm a Jew. Maybe it's part of my heritage <laughs> or something like that. But yeah. two, it's like you mess up. If you don't bring the price down, you've messed yeah. up the travel experience yeah. for later generations. Yeah. Where if I, if they say three and I know the price is one and I pay three, yeah. then it becomes three. Then they start charging five. And yeah, actually, that then it becomes confusing for hosts because we're we're horrible. Maybe as a Jew, you have better talents as a as a as a barter, <laughs> yeah, or bargainer than me, uh, because yeah, because we're, most Americans are not just not very good at it, mm-hmm. and we're in a hurry. You know, I eventually became pretty good at it. It is um, a school skill to like to to like learn. But but like I, I recently read an article in the Walrus, which is a Canadian magazine, about this guy and his sort of consumer's guilt in Cuba. And his sort of conclusion was, well, I am going to 
tip $10 if I want to. And it's like, really? You know, that basically then you have this expectation that sure, you can be a hero in your own world and, and, and tip, you know, a, a month's wages to somebody. But then, I don't know, it makes the transition period hard. And speaking to your point about how much should you bargain or not bargain, um, and then, then are they going to be disappointed when everybody doesn't tip ten dollars? Yeah, right. Is it is um, some people people come from Europe and they're in Cuba and Europe isn't a tipping culture, Asia isn't a tipping culture, and suddenly they're assholes because they're not tipping. I mean, it, it it's, right. it's Pandora's box. You know, that yeah. you think you do something that, that feels generous, or you're in a hurry and you don't want to bargain, or and then suddenly it's weird. I, like when I was when I was in Myanmar, I've been there many times because I was on a border town, but my when I spent three weeks there, I bought a Chinese made bicycle and rode around for three weeks. Um, and, uh, like I was invited as it sounds like you were in, in Sean state to, to sleep in like the monastery in some town one mm-hmm. night. And, and it was awesome. Uh, and then the next night I had a similar gener- piece of uh, generosity. I think it was just like a tri, uh, tri cab, pedicab, uh, driver took me to meet his family in a market and we had food and stuff and it was obvious that somebody had had the same experience and given him like 20 bucks or something, mm-hmm. you know. And so I gave him what would have been a generous tip in Burmese chat, and he seemed a little disappointed. And it's obvious he was one of those people who was trying to negotiate how to – and this was in 2001 when nobody went to Myanmar. Yeah. So he was trying to figure out what is what – is, What's the right amount here? What's the right amount, yeah. yeah. And so I felt bad because I had, with no expectation – accepted generosity in the temple the night before from people who'd probably never done it before. And maybe, and like if I had given them $20 had the next people they offered generosity to it's, it's weird. And I don't think yeah. there's, I don't think there's a hard and fast moral answer, but it's, it opens up the box of how tipping and bargaining and everything affects people. The one thing I heard that I will say like hard and fast is like, do not give money to children. Yeah. Because yeah. even though like, Oh no, let me help them out. It's like you fu- you fucked them or even pens or, or, cookies yeah they ask for, for peens or pens yeah, or yeah. Yeah, meanie yeah 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 just for stuff and you're like no go to school and earn it and, and part of it part of the problem there is it breaks down the social hierarchy you know um, in more traditional cultures where you know the, the parents are the, or the grandparents are the head of the household you know if you give a kid 20 bucks and the dad makes 20 bucks a month then, then suddenly it encourages kids going out and asking for money you know I had somebody do my laundry once and in on island in Timor Leste, and, and uh, I was like, "Do I? How much do I give? Five bucks?" And he was like, "That's a full day's salary, right. so I wouldn't do that." And I was yeah. like, "Okay, I, yeah. I don't want to do that." But yeah, but if you have the money, it's still like you feel like, "Well, man, who cares?" But it's like you should care a little. Yeah, it's such a hard, um, it's such a, a weird situation to think about because because mm-hmm. I think we got on this topic by talking about. Uh, one downsmanship, you know, super cheap backpackers. Right. When you should spend oh, yeah. money, when you should not spend money. Um, and then, but one great thing about super cheap backpackers is that they learn how to bag and bargain in the manner of a local, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and maybe that's the solution. Where you find out how much the actual cost is. Yeah. How much yeah. a bottle of water, it's like a standard thing where you got to buy everywhere. And they hit you with like 10 of their currency and you're like, you know, it's a three. And you're like, yeah. come on, it's three. And let, you let them talk you up to four because you're white. But like, yeah. I'm not paying you 10. Yeah, yeah. Although I had once on the on the Great Wall of China, let's just say that was the price, and uh, the guy was like ten. I was like, no, no, it's three, and he was like, yeah, it's three if you don't lug a thing of waters all the way up to the top of the Great Wall of China. Yeah, I was like, yeah. ten it is. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that, I think that's why traveling slow, the vagabonding 
type of travel, it helps you understand that. Because you're not just trying to solve a problem, you're trying to understand a situation. Mm -hmm. And if you spend enough time to understand the local prices, then you've earned the right to bargain hard, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, and, and even like with the beggar situation, if you live in a city for a month and you see the same beggars every day, then you have a better understanding of what their patterns are and, and, and things like that. So. Yeah. What I found for the hostels is, yeah, it saved money, but like I'm now doing well enough in my career, especially in Southeast Asia, where I could easily afford hotel rooms. They're what, 30 bucks a night for a pretty good one. Yeah. Or, uh, or like 10 bucks a night for a perfectly good bed. Oh, know? yeah. But... I just defer to the poor people I met. And when it's like, hey, let's see this restaurant for $3. Like, ugh, little pricey. How about that one for $1.50? You're like, sure, let's do that. Yeah, yeah. And then when I was on my own, i go to restaurants. I okay. want something good. Or if I was going to be in a city for one night, let's say I got in at 6 p.m. I had to leave the next morning at like 7 a.m. Uh -huh. It's like, I'm taking a shower. I'm getting one good night of sleep. Yeah. I'm not going to make friends here. It's too quick. And that can be a fun thing. Like if, you, if you're always traveling dirt cheap all the time yeah. to reward yourself with a holiday inside of a holiday and uh -huh. spend like 300 bucks on a hotel. Uh -huh. I did that in Bangkok. I went to the Oriental. Actually, the mag I did it as a magazine story. So it, it's it doesn't really count. But I just wanted to see what it was like. I had never, in two years, I'd never spent more than $15 on a hotel. Wow. And, and so I was a real dirt bag. I mean, it's 1999, so maybe it was a little bit cheaper, but I was, I was really saving my money. Yeah. And so it's like, I'm going to stay at the Oriental for a night. And it was fun, just, just for the difference. Dude, the joy you get from a nice hotel for the yeah. first time versus the 50th time. Oh, it's yeah. like, what yeah. the fuck? They have robes here. Yeah. You yeah. know? <laughs> I, I jumped on my bed. I'll admit, I jumped up and down on my yeah. bed. Um, just because it's like I was going to enjoy every amenity yeah. in the hotel room. So, uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a good way to mix it up. I'm almost the opposite of you is that if I'm going to eat alone, I'll usually, oh, well, I'll just get some street fo food and sit on yeah. the curb. Um, whereas if, when I'm with friends, my friends are, I'm not, weirdly enough, after all my travels, I'm not that much of a foodie. I mean, yeah. I can appreciate a delicious meal, but but um, I'm more, more food is the fuel for the rest of the day kind of guy. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. I've gotten to that point a little bit now, especially in America, where it's like, there's no food of this city. If I'm in Texas, get some barbecue, sure. But like, if I'm in, I don't know, Missouri, it's like, just eat healthy. You yeah. don't, they don't have to eat garbage just because you're in some place. Like, yeah. if I'm in New York for a day, I'll get some pizza. Sure. You know, if you were, like, come through. But generally, it's like, just eat. How much Western food did you eat while you were, like, in Southeast Asia or in Africa or places like that? I think the longer you travel, the less you eat Western food. Because uh -huh. you realize it's the shittiest dish on the menu. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think in Vagabonding, I talk about being in Pushkar, India, and the menu, it had... Greek food, it had Israeli food, it had Italian food, and it was all shitty, you know, yeah. that they had done, basically so many backpackers had been through that it was, there was sort of this nice United Nations element to, but, to it, but the, and the cook had learned to, to cook all these foods, but none of them well. Right. You know, his mom probably cooked better Indian food than the rest of that combined. And so, so I've just learned that, that the hamburger that you have in Thailand is going to be one of the crappier hamburgers you ever had. You'll never eat. Whereas the Thai food, there's, you can get mind-blowing Thai food for a dollar. Like, when I was writing Vagabonding, yeah. I had, yeah. I had a, this dude down the street, and I would go into his kitchen and point at what I wanted to eat that day. Mm -hmm. And he would fix it for me, and I, I, I must have had 100 meals there that I'll never top, and none of them cost more than a dollar. They're so good. It's so good. And they're so cheap. Where the, it's my friend says this whenever I'm like, ask how what's a currency exchange? She goes, free. All right, it's free. Everything here is free. Okay. Pretty much. You know? Okay, right. <laughs> so That's it's like, just give them some of... orange money. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and they hand you whatever the value of that in food is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, plus change. But like, 
Yeah, and that can mess you up in a market. Then suddenly you have 20 tons of limes or whatever. Because, yeah, yeah. Because you, yeah. you don't recognize the money. <laughs> um, it's just though that I find it's like, I'm not going to find this food when I get back home. Yeah. So yeah. what a waste to eat a burger or yeah. some garbage pizza. And you think it's comfort food, but it isn't, you know? Yeah. Um, find, find food that'll be comfort food later in life, you know? Find f- so find something to fall in love with. I have with. not found a Burmese um, restaurant here. I've looked like a compulsory, that's the wrong word, cursory? Compulsive? No. Cursory? Yeah, like a quick look. Cursory. Cursory. Yeah. Thanks, mm-hmm. thanks, author. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but when I was in L.A. two weeks ago, my friend's like, hey, this is Myanmar food place. I'm like, yeah. And I had some like tea leaf salad and just like evoke these memories mm. of January Yeah. that I was like, oh, yeah. And then they're like, how much? It, meal was $45. Like, how much would this have cost? And I'm like, okay, it's 1500 shot, 500 shot. 50. Right. Yeah. 250 <laughs> It's just that, like. I had a pitcher of beer in Myanmar for 40 cents. Yeah. It's the cheapest. The that cheapest pitcher I ever had Mi- was in Myanmar. Yeah. It was 40 cents. Jesus. And it was good beer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, yeah, I love that. I, I actually, the reason I talked about comfort food is that Korean food has become my comfort food. Really? And so I went to Koreatown and, and had one of the joys of coming to New York is, is Koreatown for me. Although I went to Flushing once and had went to a place with, um, where there was no English on the menu and I can read Korean. Really? Um, and so oh, that was yeah. the best Korean food I've had. That basically, wow. if, if, you, if there's no English on the menu in New York, that's probably a pretty damn good food. <laughs> yeah. and, and it was, it was so good. I, I couldn't remember even where it is, um, in the Korean part of Flushing. But, um, but yeah, no, there's something about I think it's tied into just how raw I felt like when I went to Korea, I felt like I was a failure as one does really? 26. Like I was 26. I tried to write a book about, you know how hard you are on yourself when you're young and you think you're supposed to be successful. I tried to write a book about traveling the States. I thought I was going to be the new Jack Kerouac. Nobody cared, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I went to Korea with my tail between my legs to, to, uh, make some money. And I, and I just learned so many, I was just so vulnerable at that time. And so I think I sort of comforted myself at the time by learning food, which was my way of learning Korea. And so now probably forever, Korean food will be a comfort food for me. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and it's because I was vulnerable in an, an unexpected place 20 years ago. So, Yeah, the weird things, you set these things up. I was talking about traveling once and I was like, no, I've never done that. And then um, before I had done anything. And then someone was like, didn't you live in Israel for two years after high school? I was like, oh, yeah, I guess, but that doesn't really. Like, why doesn't it really? What do you mean? Where in Israel did you live? I was in yeshiva. I was Orthodox, so I was uh, okay studying in like a seminary in in Beit Ragan, Jerusalem. So you speak Hebrew and all that. It's gotten way worse. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, but no, yeah, that that counts. Yeah, I know, I, but I didn't even think of it that way. It was yeah. like oh, it was just something you do, and I'm assuming the same way for you in Korea when you're 26. You're like. I mean, looking back on it now, for me, it's going, wow, that must have been amazing. And you were like, I'm a failure. <laughs> right. Yeah, no. well, well, there was an amazing aspect to it, but it wasn't like I was going there to learn about Korea. And of course, I did learn about Korea. Yeah. And my students taught me more than I taught them, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, it was just, a, it was at that time in American history, I'm sure it's still true. As a guy with a worthless English degree, I could make a decent amount of money in Korea. And as someone who, you know, was proud of his writing and had failed in his writing up to that point. You know, I just, I wasn't proud to be there. It was, it was so vital as a travel writer, as a traveler, as a writer in general to, to be there and to experience that again and and to sort of be humbled at that point in my life. Um, and so, yeah, so one of the, one of the side effects is that Korean food, makes me sentimental and reminds me of that time in my life, which was such an exciting time in my life. And it's, I'm, I'm so much more successful now. 
on every level, but there's something sort of awesome about remembering those times where you felt less than successful. Yeah. It's, it's, it's in comedy too. Yeah. Where I say this once in a while, Ralphie May, when I was a year in, this big comic who was successful at the time. And he was like, how long are you doing comedy? He's like a year. He goes, oh, this one is just fun. And okay. I remember going like, well, man, I don't know what I'm going to eat today. I don't know if I'll have money to eat today. But right. looking back, he was 100% right. It's just about writing a good joke. You get one callback. Like, I did it. I did a callback. I've never done that before. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just the joy of it. I don't know. But I can't imagine Hemingway feeling like a, like a failure when he's, like, signing up for the Spanish-American War. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, that was his, his version of a travel stunt, maybe. I'm sure he knew he would write about that. Yeah. Um, not to disparage his, his convictions. He's but, dead uh, now. It's okay. He's not gonna, it's not going to feel bad. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'm curious... Um, what is it like to travel as a comedian? You know, is, does it inform your comedy? Or oh, it... yeah. Okay. Well, for me, I've almost got to the point where I'm going to try to stay home this year more. Okay. Because I, I find that I'm less able to relate to regular oh, to experience. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I'm like, I can only do so much about, you know, buses somewhere or trains somewhere and less about like getting into a fight with a neighbor or getting like dumped. Right. Things like that. We're like, oh, I, I understand what that experience is like. Right. Because there's a narrative core to comedy, but. And travel is full of narrative, mm -hmm. right? But again, it's that thing, you come home and you don't want to bore your friends with a story about some awesome moment somewhere else. Yeah. So maybe on a comedy level. Oh, for sure you can do that on stage. Some okay. story about some horrible like uh, experience okay. where okay. it just becomes like, I mean, I have a, a, a bit on YouTube about my first shit squat toilet okay. experience okay. in China and it just becomes like great laughs. And then some people go, man, it's that way in Turkey also, or man, yeah. trust me, all over like rural Europe, it's like that. Yeah. Or I went camping once. Yeah, you know. exactly. I had to do the same thing. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Um, I guess humiliation, there's something universal. Yeah. I mean, that's why young adult literature is fun to read because it often hinges on humiliations of youth. Yeah. And, and I think we can all relate to that somehow. So I think the money sometimes stops you from having these experiences. When we got stopped in that city in Sean State where it was like, what are we going to do? The bus is left. We're not supposed to stay here. Do we sleep outside? And I know I could just, and the people don't know what I do. I could just be like, I'll just hire somebody. We can take us to the city, to the next city, you know, oh, two yeah. hours from now. Yeah. But it's like, no, don't do that. Fucking find yeah. the experience. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you get way more I, I've done that way of, oh. of not hiring a, a car. Yeah. Of just like, well, let's figure out how we're going to sleep tonight. Or, or of hitching or, or something. Yeah, hitching. Yeah. When they tell you like, oh, the last bus is left. I'm like, how do I get to so-and-so? And they give you the thumb and you're like, yeah. fuck, yeah. all right, here we go. Yeah. Actually, I, um, I got left behind by the Trans-Siberian train in, really? in uh, on the Mongolian-Russian border wow. in 99. And so I had to hire a car, but it was hiring a car in the best sense of the way. I'm, I'm sure you would have had fun as a comedian dealing with that because I'm talking to this sort of Asian-Russian girl who's trying to explain how I can hire a taxi that will go to Ulan Uday. So it's like a 100-mile taxi We've broken ride. English, probably. We've broken English, and so she's poorly translating it, and she's here. Um, well, you have to make sure that you you... Oh, was it like pay the money up front, but don't show too much money because I'm here. Oh, I'll get cheated. She's here. No, no, no. You know, I'll get, I'll offend him. No, no, no. And she's here killed. You'll get killed. So it, it's, <laughs> I just look for the word. It's, it's like she's not, it, killed probably isn't the exact word. It, 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 I'm sure, at least I hope, it was just her way of saying be careful. Yeah. But with the with the words that she had, it's basically, oh, well, just, it's fine. She's saying it's fine, but don't get killed. And so, um, it wasn't like renting a car, but it was one situation where I got out and I got a story as a result. Yeah. You know? And so I think it's that, that difficulty. Like the, I think I would think, not being a comedian, but I would think the more you embrace hardship, the more you, you get to that core humanity, you know, that yeah. sort of raw humanity that, that makes people 
identify with and laugh somehow. You know that. Did I? So I was in LA and, and uh, I got there a little early and I was going to finish a sound editing for my special. Um, and uh, it was, what took way later than I thought it was going to be. I was going to call a friend. By the time I got out, he was asleep. I was like, fuck. I went to one hotel. It was closed. It was sold out. Another one was like 300 bucks. And I'm like, I need it for six hours. I don't want to. And then I was like, I'm just going to sleep in my car. Okay. I went up in the hills and did. It was fine. And then I told people later and they're like, what? Yeah. And I was like, oh, you have no idea how awful I can live. Just a yoga mat somewhere is like, yeah, yeah. good enough. I think people forget um, how easy potentialities too. I have a weird story. Before before I vagab- actually before my first vagabond trip, I was in college. I wanted to jump trains one summer. Oh, neat! And so I was in the Pacific Northwest. We tried to jump trains to Canada, but the train wasn't going. So we went to Spokane because that's where the train was going, and we got arrested in Spokane. And, for for train jumping? Yeah, but it was by the train police. Uh, and so, uh, so, so they, they blow it. their big whistles at you. <laughs> right. I, I think it's they're, they're hired by the train companies because if some dorky college kid like me loses a leg, then the train company gets sued. And so we went to the office and our, our mug shots, we held fingers up. Like I was nine and my buddy was 10 and my other friend was eight. Yeah. And so we spent, it ended, only ended up being three days, but I mean, that's such a raw experience. So we, we slept in train yards and wow. when I was driving home to Kansas that summer and I got sleepy I went to the train yard to sleep. What a stupid place to sleep. But I was, I'd, I'd realized just... Programmed yourself? Yeah, because I had train jumped and felt fine, I was somehow more comfortable sleeping in a train yard than in a public park, you know, because I knew I wouldn't be messed with through experience. Yeah. Except, by, I mean, yeah, I guess I wasn't sleeping in a rail yard. I was sleeping by the tracks yeah. uh, on the trip home. So it's just, it's one of those situations where why would anybody ever think about having to sleep in a, in a rail yard? But because I had jumped trains for a few days, suddenly my 20 year old self was comfortable sleeping in a rail you yard. You knew that as a place of like, yeah, I can yeah. do that. So it's the same with the car, you know, yeah. um, that, that, uh, it shouldn't be weird. I understand why your friends think it's weird, but yeah, why not? I mean, the doors are locked. I don't, like there's no issue really yeah. yeah yeah, and you can understand why they think it's weird but they're like eh who cares yeah on some level what, what, let's talk a little for a second about um, expectations okay and having them and not having them uh, how they hold yeah. you back and how they get you to do things as well I don't know yeah I, well I think expectations are good because that's why you know why would you, why else would you go to uh, to Machu Picchu unless you had expectations that it would be beautiful and and, yeah. and amazing you know or that you've dreamt about it but I think if again going back to something we talked about earlier if your expectations and your reality always match up then at best you'll be a consumer of the experience that you have you have bought an experience that is exactly what you'd you got planned what I was it to supposed be. to yeah yeah and so um, I you can't avoid expectations but if you can sort of wiggle inside your expectations as you go and realize that the expectations are set by someone who's comparatively ignorant. They're set by a guy who's looking at his internet connection at home in Brooklyn or Manhattan or wherever, Kansas. And the expectations are being set by images, which if you follow any travel Instagram account, they're beautiful pictures, but they probably don't coincide with the hundreds of other people holding up cell phone or smartphones yeah. while that picture was being taken. Right. Yeah. And then, after you travel for a day or a week, suddenly you're a smarter person. You know a lot more. You've talked. You've had breakfast with people who've been traveling for two years, and they, they're giving you ideas that had never occurred to you. And so that's when you really have to be a, a, a sh- harsh about your expectations and realize that um, 
if you're only holding yourself to your expectations, then you're selling yourself short. You know, it, it's okay yeah. to to not go to like Machu Picchu will always be there if you if you learn about this festival that happens every twenty years up the valley, maybe go to the festival. Yeah, exactly. Where it's like um, I, I talked somehow I try to relate it to like coming to New York, where they're like. Well, I, I say it like this a lot, where there's like two things you want from a city. From early on, you got to see the statues, and then eventually you start hitting the restaurants. So you like interesting, you know, okay. you actually get the more like living there experience. Right. But you got to see the statues. I mean, yeah. you can't go to, uh, you know, Siem Reap and not go to Angkor Wat. You ha- don't be an asshole. You have to. That, that's a good way of putting it. Don't be an you asshole. Know? I mean, yeah. the, the don't, don't be the, the 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 detached cool guy traveler before you've even been to a place. Yeah. You know? um, but a friend of my sister's is here for the first time from Mexico. Uh, and we were talking, we we're giving him suggestions and I sort of felt myself, I'm, I guess I've lived in New York for short times before. And so I sort of fell into cool guy, uh, travel advice mode uh-huh. when I realized this guy probably wants to see Times Square. Right. And of course he wanted to see Times Square, like standing in Times Square and you're from Leon, Mexico and suddenly you're in Times Square. Not right. only is it sort of a, a, this complete blast to the visual senses, but it's also, it ratifies that you're there, yeah. you know, um, yeah. in the, in, in the way that whatever burlesque club you know in Chinatown that I may have recommended otherwise well there's that too to- though so like, if I come to New York as an outsider I'm like I want to see Times Square I want to get a slice of pizza yeah. and you're like yeah it's great let me show you this place where they do awesome jazz on Tuesday nights and all these cool jazz musicians okay. show up and you're like yeah. okay well that's not in Lonely Planet they've only been doing yeah. that for two years Okay. You know, but you're like, that's a cool New York experience. Or let me like get on the subway. Yeah. That's like, good. oh, there's actually more fun than you think it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but you'd have to come off your expectations in order to do that. Yes. You know? Yeah. That, that's a good way of, 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 of giving advice is that give them the icons, but give them some cool counterintuitive stuff as well. When you're talking about the subway, Roland Barth, I think, said that um, – when you go up into the top of the Eiffel Tower, you think you see Paris, but you really don't. You, right. you go in the metro and you see a lot more of Paris than you do see standing people, on the top of the Eiffel See people, see like, I went to school at Yeshiva University my first year when I was still Orthodox. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just the Spanish Harlem area, 185th and Amsterdam, and people playing like three-card Monty in the streets. And you're like, yeah. God damn. And you can't see that from on top of the Empire State Building. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, you can see where it is, but you'll never get down and dirty like that. Yeah. No, it's good to strike your balance. I'm trying to think. I first came here in 1994. Yeah. I came to this place, Tompkins Square Park, and there are people sleeping here. Oh, you can't. That was when it was a war zone, right? Uh, it, I was maybe too naive to. Yeah. I, I think I brown bagged a 40 <laughs> a few blocks away just because that was so, well, one because I was cheap. Yeah. The bars were so expensive. And I just, it just felt like a New York thing to do. Um, it could have been dangerous. I had some people had told me to go to what they called Alphabet Soup at the time. Yeah. There was a bar called Sophie's. Have you heard of Sophie's? I, I just distinctly remember it. You could get beer for like a dollar or two dollars or something. Um, I, I went to a taping of the Donahue show. <laughs> I went up the Empire State Building. And so it was an interesting, it was an interesting mix. On the first time I was on the subway, um, I met a porn star, or at least a guy mm-hmm. who said he was a porn star, a guy who said he was in Debbie Does Dallas. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, was he Dallas? What's that? Was he Dallas? He was. He said his name was Tony Mansfield. I remember this stuff okay. very clearly because yeah. it was my first vagabonding trip. And actually, in 1994, you were conditioned as an American to be scared of New York. New York was still a scary place. Um, and so I was, even though I'd been traveling for about five or six months by that time, um, I, was, I was nervous. I parked the van in New Jersey and came over on the PATH train. <laughs> 
Because uh, you're like, my hug perhaps will get robbed if I leave my car there. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. And, and like I said, I mean, there were homeless people here in, in the park, but I, w- I never felt danger. I slept at the Y, up the Vanderbilt Y at 42nd Street. Oh. Um, and... And it was awesome. I mean, I think that taught me a lesson early on that my whole life, and maybe New York in the 70s was, was lousy. Um, but I came here and I loved it. I, I realized that I really, that New York was a special place. And it remains one of my favorite cities in the world. It's pretty, um, it's pretty exciting. And, and, but yet I was this, this kid wandering around with his, with his booze in a bag and, and going to the Donahue and trying to make sense of things. So it's fun. It's fun. I forget who would give... History has forgotten who gave me the advice to go to Sophie's and Alphabet Soup yeah. versus seeing the Donahue show, but it all worked out well. It left me wanting more of New York. Yeah, you said something in that book, if I'm remembering right, was like uh, somebody asked somebody if they saw the real Asia, and he responded, it's, it was all real to me. I don't know. Yeah, Thomas Merton. Thomas yeah. Merton. I love that quote. He was a monk, a Trappist monk who lived in um, uh, Kentucky, but he was almost like a beatnik monk. Like he mm-hmm. was, He was sort of... His ideas were getting into the American consciousness around the same time as Allen Ginsberg and Edward Abbey and, and oh. other uh, writers of the time. And he was just, in a way that you see among monks, um, usually affiliated with like Buddhist monk, Dalai Lama type Buddhist monks, but he was just a real, he was just open to the universe in the way that a monk should be. And, and his travel journals are fascinating. And so they, it was sort of an innocent answer. They're here, did you see the real Asia? You know, thinking that they're, that's sort of a sophisticated way of saying, did you you know, eat the chicken foot soup in in the yeah. market. And he was wise enough to understand that, you know, uh, an Asian guy playing pinball is as Asian as... And also, you know. yeah, if it changes, like if there's this new fusion rush, if fusion becomes a big thing in New York, then right. fusion is the real New York. Yes, yeah. You know, yeah. that's at the time when I went, let's just say, if I traveled here 30 years ago, this thing was happening. There was a renaissance of Indian food. So if you go to New York, get that Indian food then. And yeah. that was the real New York. Let's yeah. just say, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, they, the, the real London now, if you want good food in London, they say you can get curries or... Yeah, or, exactly. Or, or shawarma. Thai food. Yeah, uh-huh. or shawarma, definitely. Um, yeah, that's what they all talked about, the problem with immigration in, in, in uh, London. But I'm like, yeah, but the late night food now is so right. much better than it yeah. was. Oh, by, by far. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, this has happened everywhere. In, when photography... I wrote about this in my souvenirs book. When photography... studios arrived in Tokyo in the 1860s, Western travelers would go to Tokyo and be disappointed to see all these Japanese people posing in their waistcoats and top hats Mm -hmm. for family portraits. And the the photography studios eventually learned to keep a bunch of shogun costumes, basically, so so that Westerners could come and, and get pictures of what they thought Japan was. And so this is, you know, going back to expectations, is that some of our expectations of other countries are really... Are there's two dimensional to the point of being insulting, you know, um, and I think I had those at a time. I, I went to Korea, sort of expecting pagodas and bicycles and stuff. When in a sense, Korea was way more sophisticated than the United States yeah. in in the terms of education and a lot of aspects of technology and stuff. Oh. Um, and I think if you don't allow yourself to be surprised by how, as Westerners, we're being beat at being Westerners in countries that aren't Western. You know, if you if you hold on to this idea that that a cultural the culture is siloed and that it isn't always changing, um, when you see monks with smartphones, yeah, it's almost like a betrayal. Yeah, we're like, but I wanted this. That's the expectations thing. But I wanted them to be these peaceful, like, don't talk all day monks. Yeah, but then you stop and go, oh, now I know, and can talk about how monks have smartphones. That's yes. the real them now. And it probably 
it doesn't make them less monk. Right, you know? exactly. I remember seeing, a, 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 when I moved to Korea, the first week I was there, I saw a monk with Air Jordans underneath his robes. And I just thought that was the weirdest yeah. anomaly. You yeah. know? But why not be comfortable? Um, why not be comfortable? Yeah. yeah, and maybe he likes basketball. I don't know. A lot of my students in Korea knew the NBA better than I did. So I made a monk die laughing one time when he was telling me how he can't eat solid foods after noon. Um, okay. Yeah, only at... Uh, Where was this? Thailand, northern Thailand somewhere. Okay. And I was like, so... But then you can eat like liquids and stuff he goes yeah yeah it's fine and I was like well do you ever get like some pad thai and then like put it in a blender till it, and he just they just laugh for like 10 minutes yeah yeah so, sort of a western solution yeah. eastern problems it's like no <laughs> what I actually when I traveled the states in 94 I stayed at a Cistercian monastery in Massachusetts yeah and it was interesting to just see a bunch of dudes who got up at 3 in the morning and went to bed at 9 and prayed 5 times a day oh. um, and I think one reason it was interesting is just that it was different is that, that yep. people were living a, for contemplation you know Benedictine monks in the cr- Christian tradition are more charity oriented and stuff but these guys their life was given to contemplation and their way of being in the world and their attention of, to the world was pretty remarkable although it was funny they had like these dumb jealousies too you know at the end of the day it's a bunch of people trying to live together you know oh um, right what were they jealous about well it, it was funny like Father David was the host and you could tell he was this type A guy, and he was an organizer, and maybe his, and, and, and probably it would be a very sloppy place without Father David. He, he, he got the, ho- the guest. Then there's Father Simon, who sheared the sheep and, and was just this godly man, and everybody couldn't shut up about Father Simon and how godly he was and how gentle he was, and they'd never <laughs> met a guy like that. And you could just see Father David fuming, you know, because I do good work too. In, in, his, in his mind, it's like, well, yeah, Father Simon may shear the fucking sheep, but I'm the reason that your toilet works, you know. Um, so, that, I mean, that made them in a, in a place, I think it's easy, you know, the monks, be they um, Catholic or, or Buddhist or whatever, you, you, you sort of project ideals on them, you mm-hmm. know, like a, what we've lost in a materialistic world. So it was fun to see just a normal human thing like jealousy rear its head in the yeah. monastery. Um, so that's I think there's there's a corollary there with cross cultural stuff. Is it just anywhere people um, live differently? Um, like being being in North Africa or the Middle East during Ramadan, you know, and just sort of realizing how hard it is to negotiate Ramadan um, and how hard it can no be. restaurants are open daytime and stuff. Or yeah, they- or you can buy a, buy a bottle of water, but you're the only person in the street who's drinking water, and you're sur- you're the American guy. The non-Muslim guy who's the asshole who's oh, really? chugging water in front of people in their who, can't, faces. who can't drink until sunset. Um, no drinking either. Wow. Yeah, and so and what, what happens? I, I noticed a lot of, especially the young men, would go. They would wash their face, and you could tell that they had been taught when they were young: if you get super thirsty, wash your face, and if water gets in your mouth, then that's okay. You're not breaking the rules of Ramadan. So even that, just being in a place. I think it's easy to objectify and over-exoticize other places, but being in a place where everybody is not eating all day makes you think about eating. You know, it makes you think about drinking. Um, and so that's another way. I mean, I guess I'm just saying you don't have to meet monks to be put into a different mindset. That Suddenly you're in, you're in a different country and they are abiding by certain cultural norms that you have to come to terms with one way or another. Yeah. Um, and I felt, at first I obliviously was guzzling my water, but then I realized that then I just sort of did it more privately because I, I was being a jerk. You know, yeah. I, was, I was the guy with the, the, the delicious steak right in, in front of the cancer face. patient who can't eat steak yeah. sort of thing, you know? Oh, you so. should have this. It's so good. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you, um, you're a writer, a travel writer. Yeah. Is that what you describe your living? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've done some teaching. Yeah. I've, uh, 
done some non-travel writing and stuff. But travel, travel is my brand, for lack of a better word. It's okay. what people associate me with, and it's obviously what I love to talk about. So, do you ever feel separate issue? What I was going to talk about? Do you ever feel the need to fulfill that by doing more traveling instead of like having this like I don't really feel like it anymore? Yeah, but, I, I, I come up against that, huh. and I actually there was a point. It's been almost ten years ago that I said, I there's there's diminishing returns. I'm going to be a boring travel writer if I keep doing what I'm doing. So I got a midlife master's degree. I taught university for a while. Um, I've done some more cultural criticism typewriting. I've done some more historical typewriting. I've written some screenplays. Um, Do you really? Just to avoid that. I, it's also tied in with guilt, though, because I'm the travel writer guy who isn't writing about travel as much anymore. Um, and so You can't be expected to fulfill what they want of you. Well, yeah, you don't want to be the, the, the dancing monkey of your own persona. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you want to keep things real, as they said in the 90s. Um, and so, and, and also I don't want to be, like a lot of my early travel writing I, uh, that I was writing in my late 20s, right now I think, oh yeah, I wrote that in my 20s. I go back and I read it. It's really charming. It's well-researched. There's a lot of personality in it. But I, I'm not that person anymore. You know, I, yeah. I can't write about being the awkward, goofy guy who's having misadventures in Russia because I'm a more seasoned traveler. I'm an older guy. You wouldn't do it that way anymore. Yeah. If you had to go there for the first time now. Yeah. And so, um, so I, as a travel writer, I could write and make money from destination stories, but there's sort of a formula to destination stories. I don't know if there's any corollaries in comedy, but you don't want to be the guy who presumably has the same template of, of jokes or... Early on in stand-up, Almost every male who's doing it talks about not being able to get laid. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's because you're 24 to 27 yeah. and you're unsure of yourself. And then in your 30s, you're like, it'd be so fake. Like, you know, I know how to get laid. Right. Yeah. I'm a fucking adult. <laughs> you just take a girl out, and then you yeah. get laid. It's not. Yeah. It's not that difficult. Everyone is, has value. I was in, I was traveling in Australia once, and I was hanging out with this snake catcher. And in in Darwin, Australia, they don't have a dog problem. They have a. It's in the jungle, so somebody sees a snake in their toilet there's a lot of poisonous snakes in australia so they call the snake catcher and he's talking about his snake catcher friends impressing girls it's like yeah a friend and basically he's talking about impressing girls because he's a snake catcher he's like 24 and i'm thinking dude just just tell her she's pretty you know ask her a question i I guarantee (laughs) you that being able to handle snakes will have diminishing returns but that's that's who you that's the brain space you occupy at a certain time of male life and i think those travel stories which again were well researched and funny had a little bit of that longing um um for female attention or whatever that you know again and and maybe even certain longings for certain types of travel that are no longer novel to me anymore Mm -hmm. and so i just have to find ways Uh, moving forward i'll probably write more books like my travel um, writing will be book oriented no but oh. just like a book length project you know that that uh i take an idea and i write about it at book length just because i can dig in further and i don't have to just dash off a more formulaic article about it i like the way you sum up the difference between a tourist and a traveler just the difference how did i sum it up i mean through the quotes you use also oh yeah yeah but my favorite one was wasn't you it was someone you, you quoted but uh a tr- let me say it right. A, a tourist sees what he has come to see. A traveler sees what he sees. Yeah, something like along yeah. those lines. There's also a, a, a traveler doesn't know where he's going. A tourist doesn't know where he's been. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is harsh, but it it can be true. You know. There's one that you wrote. I, I put all these quotes down that I, that I liked, the ones I liked. But then this was just your writing. And so, let's see if I can find it. 
which I liked, about seeing new things or about... Um, uh, the point of travel then is not to evaluate the rightness or wrongness of other cultures. Mm. After all, you can stay at home and do that, but rather to better understand them. Yeah, which yeah. Which that's kind of just, I, I just like that. What are you guys into and why? Yeah, and I, I think it's so important because um, even people in the United States who fancy themselves multiculturally aware can be really judgmental, mm -hmm. you know? In a, in a way, and people who think that they're being anti-Western are just sort of being anti-Western in a very Western way. And so I think there's an open-mindedness to travel that gets you past the rhetoric of perception, you know, and you can internalize things. I'm thinking about a lot of the politicized ways that we talk about um, questioning our Western perspective and things like that. Yeah. Um, and I think travel allows you, it's, it's a much more humble way of engaging it, you know, that you're basically... What do you mean? Um, what's that? What do you mean? More humble way of engaging it. Um, I think like in academic settings, you know, there's entire departments of post-colonial studies that, that rhetorically look at the sins of the West and try and look at sort of the embedded prejudices which, with which we evaluate other cultures. And I think that that is valid. But there's a point at which that that, and we'll use post-colonialism as an example, it becomes so um, caught up in its own nomenclature and abstractions that yeah. it actually carries its own arrogance. You know, it's, it's not, it, it, it's just sort of a prescription against a certain way of thinking without investigating that way of thinking. It's like, in a way this is wrong, now prove why. Instead of going, just yeah. look and decide right yeah. or wrong. Yeah, or, you know, there's a lot of, I don't want to pick on post-colonial scholars, but like people will say, well, this is a victim of tourism. Well, like, how do you know? Is it because of the theory or is there any empirical right. Proof um, of that. data to that? You know, and, and I, I think sometimes there's this assumption that, again, that people in other countries will be happier if they're being traditional, air quotes, yeah. traditional, when in fact you go to a place and you realize you see the monk with the Air Jordans, you see, you uh -huh. know, um, a, you know, the, the, the guy in Nepal who knows more about Biggie Smalls than you do. And, and, <laughs> and just all this stuff, you just realize, um, you, you just have a personalized understanding of the world, good and bad, you know? I went, to, I understood this, the, the rightness or wrongness and the better understanding when I went to, yeah. um, some cockfights in Delhi. Okay. And um, they told me, like, oh, yeah, there's cockfights. So I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, it's every, pretty much every day at 6 p.m. behind this okay. mall. And I was like, what? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to check that out. And if you ignore the, like, is this right or wrong, uh -huh. just completely, like, let's not even talk about that. Yeah. Let's just see how people are doing here. Yeah. And you just start seeing they sell food and they, the, the people, like, are friendly with each other. And, like, just, I don't know. It's just, like, you can experience just how it is instead of should it be. Is that Christian influenced or, or Latin influenced? Uh, I, I ask because I've seen cockfighting in for the sure. Philippines and in Latin mm -hmm. America, but not as much in Asia. So yeah. I'm just wondering. Uh, I don't know. I, I had an awkward experience where I saw a kid who had a fighting rooster. Yeah. And I, I wanted him I wanted him to show me the claws. Yeah. But I all I could think of was to call it was a cock, and I didn't want him to. I think. wanted to say, show me your cock. You know, I, want, I want a closer <laughs> look at your cock. But I couldn't remember the word rooster. Anyway, yeah. I don't have a lot of experience. But I, this sounds like an equivalent of like the dog meat thing. Like I, yeah. I, I withheld judgment yeah. on dog meat in Korea, and I was humbled in my own way. I realized that that you know there was some self consciousness among the Koreans who ate dog meat, but then they they were gently pushing back and saying that if you're gonna if you're gonna be passing judgment, maybe you know we have things that. Uh, we perceive things about your culture that seem really weird to us that actually involve human beings. Yeah. You know? When I saw I was there and a couple of English speakers were like talking to me. It's like, Oh, who's the white guy betting on? You know, it was okay. fun. Okay. But then uh, at some point 
they're like, you don't want to take pictures? I'm like, oh, I don't want to get you guys in trouble. They're like, why would it get us in trouble? <laughs> what do you mean? And I was like, oh, this is highly illegal where I'm from. Okay. Yeah. And they're like, why? And I'm like, I can't explain it to you. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. I'm like, I, said, I think I said it was wasteful. And they're like, you know, we eat the, the roosters that get killed that night. And I was like, I didn't know that. Yeah. Just yeah, a that's, different way of that's, killing that's, them, I guess. That's good stuff. I guess when did it become illegal and why, you know? Right. And, and was it, was it, is it illegal in the United States because it's associated with Latin immigrant people? I don't Maybe. know. I don't know. Maybe it's brutality or something like that. I, I've, I've never actually seen a, a cockfight. So it, was it brutal to see? No. Really? Okay. They tie a razor on. So the claws are like this. They tie a razor on the back one, on one. Futumano is what it's called there. It's literally called the bound feet. Okay. And um, the, co- the rooster's going to move to a shade. No, I just hit my funny bone on, oh, okay. the, on the arm here. So they jump up and kind of slice it. You don't see it. And then at some point, one of them just kind of like gets weak and then just kind of like takes a knee. Huh. And somebody's like, it's over. Interesting. And he's dead. Is, it, is it entertaining? Yeah. Betting? You should bet like 50 cents. Okay. You should right. bet something. So put some stake stakes on it. Yeah. That's what I find having no money when you're traveling does. It puts stakes on things. If okay. we don't get to this place by this time, I don't know where I'm going to be able to fucking sleep. I don't know where I'm going to be able to do. I right. might have to sleep on the beach. With no with money, I don't know, the stakes are gone. Yeah. No, it, 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 it buys access to the comforts of home, in a way. Uh, a couple more things I want to talk to you about. This is really interesting, though. Yeah, no. Thank I'm, you for meeting me. Yeah, you bet. It's cool outside, right? Yeah, it's, it's a totally good Totally fine. Yeah. It's good. Actually, I was, I was walking with a friend the other day, and she said, is there a fucking saxophone every mile, every one mile <laughs> in New York? For some <laughs> reason, she hates saxophone that. music. But I just now realized we have a saxophone guy that started yeah. up. And I, I sort of made that observation to my sister the other day in Washington Square, and sure enough, a saxophone started up. So I don't know if it's the summer of sax <laughs> here in New York, but that's just a, a random thought. Yeah. Um, do you ever get robbed while you're doing these stuff? I have. Um, yeah. You know, there's a story in Marco Polo didn't go there about getting roofied basically in Istanbul, getting drugged and robbed. Really? Um, yeah, I wrote it sort of as, as a whodunit. I realized after it had happened that it's a scam on page 90 of the Lonely Planet. You know, if I just paid attention to the scams, I'd know that they they focus on solo male travelers. Um, to not no not for sex, just to rob their stuff. Oh, sorry, out. sorry. Yeah, no, I got I, I didn't get roofied by some. Um, exotic woman yeah. or man I was talking to at a bar I was it, it sort of fell into almost like the, the impulse that you and I have been talking about of wanting to talk to local people and wanting to be open to experiences so I met these guys uh, who, were, who said they were Moroccan and they were traveling and they were really friendly this was in Turkey I, and I should have guessed by their dentistry they, they sort of had janky teeth you know mm-hmm. and I, I think someone who is a diplomatic class in a country like Morocco would probably have better, you know, have better dentistry sort of thing Anyway, it was a scam, and so they, 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 they just befriended me in the way that a solo backpacker likes to get befriended, and sure. I hadn't hung out with Moroccan guys before. I hadn't been to Morocco yet at that time, and it was just a scam. They offered me a beer, and I refused it just because I wasn't thirsty for a beer, but then they got me with a cookie, They'd, the little sandwich cookie. They had put really? some sort of drug in, and I don't wow. know what happened because you get complete amnesia. They must have walked me around. They took me back up. To exactly where they found wow. me. So I think it's an organized crime thing. If, if a Westerner dies, then the police will crack down. If a Westerner wakes up in front of his hostel with no money and no passport, then, no then they're not going to work that hard. Um, and so, so yeah, that was um, – I, I wrote the story as a whodunit because I'd met a lot of <laughs> seemingly sketchy people and maybe some people who people would have judged as being sketchier. You like a list of I, suspects? Yeah, <laughs> you no, cross totally, them off? Yeah, it's in Marco Polo didn't go there that you're – that um, – 
I, I, the first paragraph of the story, I say, look, I was drugged and robbed. And then the, the story just shows you who I met that day and the reader is left to guess. And I knew that it was a successful story because I wrote it for a salon years ago and I got people who emailed me and called me a dumbass because they knew I was going to get robbed. And it's like, <laughs> dude, I, I said I got robbed in the first line of the story. You just got so caught up in the whodunit aspect, you forgot I told you that, that I got robbed. Um, and so that's one thing. And that's hopefully the most spectacular robbery will, that will ever happen to me. But I was in Chile not that long ago and I got scammed, some airport guys. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was tired. I'd, it had been an international flight. I'd forgotten the exchange rate. And just in casual conversations, they had convinced me that the decimal point was one decimal point over. Yeah. Um, and they, they help arrange like some transportation. I didn't lose that. I probably lost $30 or something. Oh, and in Cuba, when I was in Cuba, the same, uh, I fell in with a guy. It was sort of a money exchange scam. So it happens. Um, and I think there's an extent... I don't know if I say this in vagabonding, but every once in a while you'll be made a fool of. And if you're not mm-hmm. a fool every once in a while in some respect, then maybe you're not trying hard enough. You know, that it, it, it's the idea that nobody's an expert traveler because you're always in new places. You're, you're, an, you're an outsider and you can, be, you can be the hot shot who brags the most at the hostel. At the end of the day, if you're not being vulnerable, if you're not allowing yourself to at least court mistakes and, yeah. and failure and getting lost, then, um, then you know, maybe you should try harder to be uncomfortable and be vulnerable yeah. and stuff. So, so, so it still happens to me. Every I thought so there's way more people willing to scam you than there are to rob you. Yeah. And that's you what know? happened to me in, yeah. in, in Chile and Cuba. Um, and they're good. Yeah. And it, it's sort of a confidence game too. You know, they're, they have convinced you that they're your friend and your best, your best interests. And, and you should always be careful if you're in a high tourist zone. And I talk about this in the book is that, um, offers of friendships in tourist zones should be viewed with skepticism because yeah. if not a scam, then it might be, you just might be frog marched to somebody's souvenir shop. You know, there's definitely a lot of that or I found uh, gay sex. Oh, okay. Yeah, How about that? Come hang out with me. It's like, Oh cool. And then it's like, and then they're like, you want to fuck? And I'm like, no, Ooh. wait. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. I have nothing to offer. Right. Of course. Right. Well, see, for them, it's probably a numbers game, too. You oh, know, absolutely. That, that every 10th Westerner might say, well, sure. Yeah, okay. We're more down. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure how that breaks down in, in real life. <laughs> Women are obviously too smart to, to fall into that. Yeah, they're used to looking like skeptically at people. Yeah. Whereas men are just like, all right, this thing's cool. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> But um, you don't, they don't let it stop you though, do you? The robberies? No, huh? Yeah. Last thing. What's the, your version of what Henry said of, uh, of, uh, I'm here to meet you. You said you got a version of that. When I'm traveling? Yeah. Actually, I don't. Well, actually I, I've had versions of it, but they, they aren't quite so as artfully perfect as that. <laughs> yeah. you know, that I mean, cause that's, that's, that's funny. Uh-huh. You know, it communicates the point while being sort of ironic and funny and, 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 ca- and catching people And gets off the conversation guard. going. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I'm, I, I shamefully, it's usually something like, oh, well, I'm traveling around and hoping to meet people, which is a similar and less charming way of saying I'm here to meet you. So. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to say to the people who were like kind of wondering if I can do it or, if, or, about, or about to go or thinking they can't i don't know people who haven't really done vagabonding before just that when they do do it they'll be so grateful yeah. there's all these expense charts and fears and and uh, uncertainties but there'll be a moment when you're sitting in a place and the air smells different yeah. and people look different and the food tastes different and you're on day one and it's like holy <laughs> shit i did it and i'm so grateful that i did
This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Ari Shafir's podcast and comedy specials, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. You can find links to his album Lumber in the show notes, by the way. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.